Rod Builders, save the date. On April 12th, 13th, and 14th, Angler's Resource will host the Mastering Rod Building Seminar in Foley, Alabama. The event will feature a series of presentations by some of the biggest names in the rod building community, along with vendors, live music, free food, and even a keg of beer. The event's free to attend, but entry is limited to the first 150 spot people who sign up. So to reserve your spot, visit anglersresource.net slash seminar. That's anglersresource.net slash seminar and fill out the registration form on the Hope page. See you there. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Mastering Rod Building Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Faulkner, and if I had had my way, this probably would have been my second guest, but he's very busy. We've had to work around his real job and find some time to get him on the podcast, but I am thrilled to host today a dear friend of mine, someone who's been in the game longer than I have and has just made a significant contribution to many aspects of rod building, and that is Andy Deer. Andy, uh, gosh, where do I even start with Andy? I'm not going to rob the episode. Really what we're talking about today is epoxy and what do you need to understand about epoxy and adhesives and everything for rod building purposes but I, I feel like we would be remiss if we didn't since we've got him we've got him live and 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 on the air if we if we missed some of the some of the things that he's done over the years uh and and if i just hit a few high points you know has made tools and real seats and mandrels has a excellent wood turning dvd video uh the first person i know who started bringing in exotic and burl corks the inventor of carbon fiber grips the developer of threadmaster originally and now blade bond and, and gen 4 epoxies just an unbelievable contribution to the craft, uh, which he would never talk about because he's far too <laughs> humble, but I'm going to talk about him today. So welcome, Andy Deer, to the Mastering Rod Building Podcast. Thank you, brother. It's so good to see you. Man, it's so good to see you. It's been too long. It's been it's a while. Been a while. Yeah, we we been were a under while. the under at your folks' place catching trout uh, under the lights on DOA Terrorize Minnows. You know, we just drove by there. My mom and I drove. They sold that place in 2010. Oh, did they? Yeah, and we drove by there just about three weeks ago just to go see what it looked like. And that yeah. was one of the first things I thought of was you and I out there. I'll never forget, uh, you, you called Heidi, uh, your lovely wife, mm -hmm. from down there. And you said yep. that, I remember you telling her that we were solving the world's problems as it pertained to rod building. I think we and, did. Well, look you, at where you we're did. at. <laughs> yeah, you did, I think. Yeah, we'll take it. Well, hey, so thanks for joining us from Texas today. And um, look, I always ask all my guests, how did you get into fishing in the first place? Oh, gosh. Um, my dad really was, uh, you know, he, he was a fisherman. Yeah. And um, I, I mean, I have pictures of me further back than I can remember holding his Berkeley jet sport with a Mitchell 300 on it. Oh, I mean, wow. I probably, you know, two years old or something like yeah, that. Yeah. You know, a lot of my earliest memories are, uh, you know, being down at the coast, sure. water fishing, you know, we oh, yeah. a lot of time in Rockport and right. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I, it's hard for me to quantify that because it goes back further than my memory. Long does. as you can remember. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Well, that's yeah. awesome. And so, well, maybe a simpler one. Uh, so I, I tell people all the time, back when you and I were getting into this game, yeah. uh, and I got into it when I was 23, you were already there when I got into it, and, and we're about the same age. It was uncommon for there, 
we'd go to these gatherings where they're, whether they're rod crafters gatherings or guild gatherings yeah. or whatever. And we'd be the only people under 50 in the whole thing. Yeah. And so I, I think that's kind of part of how we met and, and gravitated towards one another or as we were at the same, you know, there's not that many of us have been around that long. How did you get into rod building? I, I, I know you were there before I was, but um, how, how did that come about? You know, that's an interesting story. I had, you know, I, I did a lot of bass fishing and a little bit of saltwater fishing, but a lot of bass fishing through my teen years. Okay. And, um, you know, the only other thing that, that had of equal importance in my life at that point was, uh, I played music as well. Okay. Yep. And, uh, and I know you and I kindred spirits. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I, one of your greatest contributions ever to the planet and humanity is teaching me a killer double drop D version of Steve Earle's <laughs> Copperhead Road that I still play hey. that exact version to this day. And it's awesome. So we, we're not worthy. <laughs> we're not worthy. They draft the white trash first around here anyway. Anyway, you know? that's right. <laughs> so, so yeah, so I, I, you know, I was playing guitar and, and uh, bass fishing a lot. Yeah. And when I, I wasn't really a party guy or very social. I mean, yeah. I, you know, so uh, when I turned 21, my priorities kind of shifted a little bit. You know, yeah. I started dating a lot more and right. going out a lot more. And so yeah. fishing and music kind of took a back seat for a few years. And, um, you know, I'm going to be dating myself here, but you and I come from the same generation. That's Back right. In those days, you the, can do uh, it. The VHS videotape was king, you know. Oh, and yeah. So if you remember this or not, but. 3M used to have a series called the Sportsman's Leisure Series. Yeah. And it had a lot of really good titles in it. I know Ricky Klun had a couple of titles in there. Al mm -hmm. Linder and his and his uh, guys had some stuff in there. Oh, yeah. It was really good. And It was legit. Yeah. Yeah, it was. And um, one night I was uh, at a video rental store with a female that I was dating at the time. Well, let me back up here. When I decided I was going to get back into fishing, this would have mm -hmm. been about 93. Okay. I was on the hunt for a five and a half foot fiberglass casting rod with a pistol grip. Right. And nobody made one. Not anymore. And yeah. So, and my dad had this killer old Fenwick that was, that was the perfect action for a spinnerbait, topwater reaction bait kind of, you know, thing. Mm -hmm. And, um, but it had this junky reel seat on it from back in the sixties and it didn't work, you know, right. like it had broken 20 right. years ago. And, so I was trying to find something that matched that and nobody had anything. I think Falcon might've had a pistol grip rod at that point, but it was carbon fiber. It wasn't uh fiberglass. Yeah. Blend. Right. So anyway, so fast forward a couple of months, one night I'm at this VHS store and I stumble across this rod building cassette by Dale Clements, you know? Oh gosh. Yeah. And I look at that and I go, that might be kind of interesting, you know? So I rented it, not with the intention of ever really building a rod. I just thought it would be interested to see how it was done. You know, I thought it would be cool to understand the process. And so I rented this videotape. I'm so glad and the industry should be so glad that you decided to uh, pick up that <laughs> DVD or that, uh, sorry, that VHS cassette and, and get into that. Because who knows where we'd be without all the contributions. You, you know, know, I don't know what finish I'd be using. I don't know what glues I'd be using. I don't know what I'd be doing. You know, Bill, my if you want to call it a career in this industry, my entire career in this industry has been. Well, it feels like to me nothing but a series of happy accidents and the blind squirrel finding a nut. And, well. and that happened to be, you know, one of those things. Um, so I rented the tape, got kind of interested. And I remember I used to sit in my little apartment. I had a wooden dowel and a couple of spools of thread that I had picked up at the local tackle shop. And I just yeah. practicing trim bands and single inlaid wines and whatnot. Yeah. And I'll never forget within two months, I had uh, I had a wrapping jig and I had, you know, all of the 
I, I was real big on making my own handles, you know, so I had oh, yeah. a, a court clamp, you know, and all that kind of stuff. Right. And I'll never forget the young lady that I was dating at the time came over to the apartment one afternoon and she could, God almighty, it looks like you're building a bomb in here, you know, <laughs> because all the chemicals and stuff all over oh, the yeah. table. So, so yeah, that's how it kind of got started. Yeah. Um, and for those of you who don't know, Andy never puts his work out there. He's He builds an extremely well-executed, extremely clean rod. <laughs> he does not favor a, a tremendous amount of elaborate, unnecessary cosmetic embellishment, I guess is fair. But uh, he builds a really, really good rod. And that's part of how we started talking about, hey, how are you doing your finish? And what tools are you using? And all that kind of stuff. So so you, you start building and then pretty quickly you started Lamar rods, right? Yeah, and you were so, selling rods. So really, I would say, and this is this is worth mentioning, Bill, you probably remember this, but there was re really the turning point for me where I I'm not even going to tell you that I decided that this was what I was going to do because there wasn't really a decision there. It just was. Yeah. Yeah. There used to be one of ESPN's longest running outdoor series uh, called the Walker's K Chronicle. Know it well. Flip palette. Yeah. yeah. You know, I don't know. <laughs> I look back and I can't figure out how I did this, but I got Flip's email somehow in 1995. And back then, you know, it wasn't easy to no. even with email. It, you, like, where right. are you going to find that? You right. know? So, yeah. I managed to locate Flip's email somewhere and I sent him an email and I felt a little bit like we were, a lot of people probably feel this way with Flip, but Flip had been a banker in his career and yeah, I, yeah. he has been part of my life off and on throughout the years. Right. And um, I felt a little bit of a kinship with him. And so mm -hmm. I sent him this email and just said, hey, look, I'm getting ready to graduate from college in, in a year or so. And I really don't have any idea what I'm going to do. And this show one episode, two episodes in particular, in 1995, there was a there was a two part episode with Flip Pallet and Chico Fernandez fly mm. fishing for redfish on the Indian River out of a 16 foot Monarch John boat. Yep. Prior to that, a lot of what they did was very exotic locales. And right. so yeah. really, you know, like I knew I was inaccessible never going to Seychelles right. to fish for bonefish, right. but I could, you know, like a John boat with redfish I could do. Yeah, know? yeah. And for some reason, that two-part episode really had a cerebral impact on me. I yeah. Mean, I, this is no joke. I still watch it every time I'm in my shed bottling Generation 4. Oh, that's it, it awesome. Means, it means that much to me. And so I sent Flip this email and I said, look, I have no idea what I'm going to do. I'm kind of thinking about relocating down to Rockport, you know, and getting right. a captain's license and guiding some fly fishing trips. Right. And, you know, I... Flips, he, I'll never forget. I can tell you exactly where I was sitting in the John Peace Library and UTSA campus. Right. And um, I get this response and it's like, holy moly, I can't believe he responded. Ballot email, yeah. Yeah. And he sent me a really nice email back. And it was, uh, I've still got, I've still got the original copy of it in my archives in there. Yeah. And, it, and he said something to the, I'm paraphrasing here, but it was something to the effect of, uh, you know, I know this is not what you want to hear, but I guided for 17 years and could never really figure out a way to make much money at it. Mm -hmm. And it was very much of a, you know, a military maneuver trying to find places that weren't already overcrowded. Right. And, and you know, he said, uh, you know, it's much better to be on the pointy end of the boat. Than the yeah. The boat, you know? <laughs> he should and, know. Uh, and, you know, and the irony of all of that is that Flip and I have corresponded a number of times over the years. And I've, uh, every time I always thank him profusely for mm -hmm. redirecting me. Yeah. Uh, and, Do you know, uh, this is funny. I bought my very first real fly rod that didn't come from like a hardware store or a Walmart with the EVA foam grip yeah. from flip palette. 
yeah. at the Federation of Fly Fishers event in Fort Worth, Texas in about 1986 or 87. Yeah. And he, I, a friend of my dad's, Joe Gordon, had who taught me how to tie flies and fly fish, had taken me to the show. And uh, we talked to Flip, and Flip absolutely took pity on a little kid, right? Yeah. And Sage was brand new. Yeah. Sold me used a Sage RPL2 eight foot nine inch seven weight. It's to this day one of the best bass bugging yeah. rods. Yeah. I still have it and I've gotten to yeah. where I don't fish it anymore because I'm like, if something were to happen to this rod, I'd right. feel terrible. But what a great guy. And I yeah, there's probably a hundred thousand people that could tell a nice story about him. He's such so gracious. That's, yeah. I mean, you know, you could sit there and make a list of the, you know, the Rob Fordices and the Andy Mills and the Jose Wahebis and oh all yeah. Those guys. None of this happens, especially in my life. None of this happens without Flip Pallet. Oh, uh, that's and awesome. I know, you know, I he's probably sitting over there and Mim shaking his head, you know, or wherever he's at over there now. And right. But I just can't stress enough how important that that show was in my life. And yeah. Um, so yeah, so uh, we've never talked about that. That's so interesting. I didn't know yeah. that. That's so cool. Or if yeah. we did, I forgot. So, so is this part of why you switched from just building rods to getting into product development? And no, so that like was in '95. I didn't start Lamar until about '97. Okay, and um, you know, I've started that company with the intent of building finished rods for sale. Okay, and you know, this is going to sound kind of funny. I don't really enjoy building rods all that much. Okay. I, I'd much rather tie flies or I've gotten into lure painting here recently. Yeah. Yeah. But my problem is, is that I can't bring myself to fish with a rod that I haven't built. Oh, I get it. I get so, it. So I'm in this weird <laughs> vacuum. You've created there, your man. own trip, your own you prison, know, man. Yeah. And I'm very much, you know, you were talking about my aesthetic preferences earlier. I'm very much of a reductionist, you know, I mean, yeah. I, and and part of that is because I just I just don't have the time to spend and don't enjoy it. Yeah, I just don't. You know, want to and spend. and it's funny because I look at a lot of the you know in the face in the Gen Four Facebook group we have some really talented builders. In oh there. yeah. And I look at that and I just go, gosh, I wish I had the patience for that. Right. You know? right and I just yeah. don't. You know. Yeah. So and I'm a firm believer that you know you I don't know if you ever watch uh, my wife likes to watch the Food Network and so they oh yeah talk on there a lot about a culinary point of view. You know. Sure. Yeah. I think every rod builder has a rod builder's point of view. You know. Sure. And mine is very much comes from an from a bamboo style aesthetic. You mm -hmm. know. I think you know the 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 rod building world begins and ends with Tom Morgan. Yeah, yeah, you know, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. so I just love that simple elegance. You right. know, I find as much flawlessly executed simple yes. elegance, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So you know, so I started Lamar in '97 and um, built rods for sale for about two years, and the transition into product development really it just kind of happened. Yeah. I think you've got one of those minds. I, I don't think you would have come up with so many different products over the years. You're just one of those tinkerers who's always got ideas going in his head or something. So one of the things that happened to me that was really important was um, I became friends with a guy who actually worked about two or three doors down from me, the business where I worked. Whose name was, was this Scott the prosthetic? Yeah, the prosthetic shop or whatever. Or the well, he, he was a prototype or... design shop. Prototype design shop. Scott yeah. Wallace, yeah. And Scott, you know, is a really talented guy. He's equal parts machinist, mold maker, you know, carbon fiber guy. Yeah. You know, he spent four or five years here just recently redoing all of the instrument panels out of carbon fiber for some classic Porsche mm. uh, sports cars from mm -hmm. the 1960s. Mm -hmm. And um, the funny story about that is when I when I went to work for this other company, my boss was kind enough to give me some shop space up front in the warehouse. Right. 
And so, and it was only about a half a mile from my apartment. So I wasn't married at the time. I'd go home, eat dinner after work, come back up and start building rods. Right. And I'd be up there till midnight, one o'clock. And Scott was always out till midnight, one o'clock. And Scott, right. Scott likes to ride a unicycle. And uh, so we worked on the cul-de-sac. Yeah. And to get this, you he don't rides, hear that every day. <laughs> he rides a mountain unicycle, not a of standard course. street unicycle, of course, of but course. a mountain unicycle. And so I, you know, I'd go out to take a break about midnight and have a, you know, have a Coke or something. And Scott would be out riding his unicycle in the cul-de-sac. And so we kind of got to know each other. And it just turned out that really the way that that sort of morphed into product development was I had a need for some stuff that you couldn't get on the open right. market. And right. one of those was were, were grip turning mandrels. Right. And, uh, you know, right around that time, the advent of the reasonably priced imported mini lathe, mm-hmm. uh, you know, kind of came on the market and just about everybody had a 10 by 14 mini lathe, Jet, right. Delta, Penn State, they all had one. Right. And um, so it really opened up a lot of uh, room for creativity, uh, but you needed, but you needed to have the right, stuff you know so clemens time they had what they offered as grip turning mandrels but they never had them in stock right right and i tried for like 18 months to get those things and so finally one day i i went over to scott calling up rose and lincoln at clemens yeah yeah, when am i gonna get some mandrels and uh so i i I walked over to scott's one night probably about midnight and said look here's what i need i need a steel stick with a 60 degree hole drilled in each end and he went yeah no problem you know so i ordered some drill rod and uh took it over to him and he showed me how to do it with it's, it's kind of funny, you know, to make those things, all you really need is a $2 center drill, right. Right. A thousand dollar metal lathe, you know, right. Exactly. With it, yeah, you know? Yeah. So he showed me how to do that. And um, then I used his equipment for about six months until okay. I could afford to buy my own metal lathe. But, right. you know, it was funny because around that time, that was around the time of the very first guild conclave, which is oh, where yeah. you and I met face to face the first time. I think you and I right. actually met somewhere around 95. Yeah, I 96. think I was in San Antonio for work or something. And you like, was it, when was it? I can't remember. No, you Your and timeline's I, um, right. We definitely met, you and I met on the guild board, on okay. the original guild board. Okay. Where I think, you and I and Ralph O'Quinn. Oh yeah. Ralphie. Then, I knew we, we got to talk about Ralphie. Yeah, we will. Point. And, uh, and then, and you know, Tom Kirkman was in, in the mix mm-hmm. there too. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, um, so I had become really pretty close with Tom, uh, mm-hmm. probably around 97 or so we were corresponding and you know, talking on the phone almost daily. Well, and you wrote a bunch of articles and a bunch of really interesting historical interviews and things. That's kind of the who's who was in the industry, right? Yeah. Yeah. That came later. So what happened was when I, when I got these mandrels up, I said, look, you know, Tom, do you think I could sell these? And he said, dude, just buy a sponsorship on the board and get after it. Right. So I bought a sponsorship on the board and I mean, like I was inundated with orders overnight. You know, it was crazy how many people wanted to learn how to turn grips and real seats. So so that's kind of how all that started. Okay. You know, then I started doing some distribution for Mike Ludeman up at WSSI. Oh um, yeah. You know, he had all the, he was really the original stabilizer. Stabilizer of, and double die stabilizer. Yeah. yeah. I think yeah. they're still out there. WSSI Inc. They're in Iowa yeah. somewhere, right? Yeah. 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 I started doing some distribution for Mike around that time. You and I met for the first time face to face at the 99 Guild Conclave. And then I ended up being on the board of directors for the Guild for about three years. and. Let's see, 99. Yeah. So it was about 2001 is when my writing for Rodmaker started. Okay. And that was a result of the the, the Woodlay stuff, really, okay. because Tom Kirkman 
and most people may know this about Tom, but he's actually a really good wood turner. Oh yeah, excellent, uh, really good. And, yeah. and at the time, he had bought a uh, he had bought a really nice one way lathe. Yeah, and uh, very expensive, made out of Canada, I think. Mm -hmm. And um, so Tom and I were always corresponding about this kind of you know the potential for what could be done with a lathe. Right. And uh, I remember telling him one time, you know, you ought to you ought to put something in there in the magazine about that. You know, you ought to write something about that. Right. And, and I remember him telling me, he said, you know, I just I've got a backlog of articles that I'm working on and I just don't have time. Do you want to take a stab at it? I said, yeah, I'll try. You know, right. so I wrote that first two part series. The first part was how to choose a wood lathe and all right. the different uh you know, specs to look for. And I, I bought my jet lathe after reading that article. <laughs> and, uh, and then the second one was actually how to turn a grip and a real seat. If I remember yeah. correctly, I had a good yeah. friend who was a photographer for ESPN that came over and took a bunch of really nice pictures. And uh, yeah. so um, we got that done. And then the writing thing kind of started because I remember Tom came back and he said, man, you know, these were really well received, you know, do you want to try to do some more stuff? And I said, yeah. Yeah, but I really don't want to do how-to because right. there's so much how-to out there. Yeah. And to me, the magazine, it was a how-to magazine. You right. know, and to me, it really needed some sort of something else to sort of separate it from, mm -hmm. you know, just being a how-to magazine. Sure. So I, it's really funny the way this worked out. I remember calling Tom from the warehouse where I worked and saying, I've got this idea, you know, to interview some old pioneers, you know, from the, from the old days, you know, and I remember him saying... Yeah, if they're not dead and you can find them, you know, yeah, you right. give it a shot, you know? So this is pre-current uh, internet. This is kind of like it, finding flip pallets email. The, you well, it's just so funny, track Bill, these people down, right? Yeah. It's so funny, Bill, because I remember I walked into my office and I typed in Jim Green, Fenwick Rod Designer. Right. And well, let's back up here just a second. So th in 2001, you and I went to the third Guild Conclave together and Gary Loomis happened to be there. Yes, I got and to drive him around. All... It was highlight of my life. <laughs> <laughs> you remember we all went to dinner. It was me and you and Gary and Tom and Gary's wife was there. Yeah. I think we went and ate barbecue. Someplace. We did. We ate barbecue. I don't yeah. think that place is there anymore in Nashville, but yeah, I remember it well. It was so like one Gary, of my favorite dinners of my life to that. Yeah. Point. Yeah. So Gary and I sat down at the end of the table and we got involved. We got involved in this long conversation about rod building history. And yeah, we were talking about Russ Peak and Ferdinand Claudio and yeah. you know, all of these, you know, uh, Don Green from Sage fame and Jimmy and, and yeah, uh, who was the people down in Texas uh, in Houston Bullard? Didn't you interview him too? I did. Yeah, yeah he, but he was really everybody. a manufacturer or a designer. He yeah, was yeah, a yeah. Contributor. So yeah. Um, so anyway, um, I remember ask, I remember specifically asking uh, Gary if Jimmy Green was still alive, and he said, he said, yeah, I think he's living up on the Snake. Okay. And, he, and and I thought, huh, okay. And so when I came up with this, when Tom and I discussed this idea of doing a bunch of uh, historical stuff, I go into my office, I sit down, I type in Jimmy Green, Fenwick Rod Designer comes up 1006 snake river road oh yeah so i walk back out in the warehouse and i dial the number and he answers the phone i said yeah i'm looking for jimmy green from fenwick and he said that's me oh man said, man you have no reason to oblige me but i'm trying to get started in a writing career and 
I'd really like to do an interview with you. And he said, how's Thursday at nine o'clock? And I went, I'll call you then. Sold. So, <laughs> so, so, you know, and that was really one of the highlights of my career because Jimmy and I became, I wouldn't say we were good friends because he didn't really live much longer after right, that. Right, right. Yeah. He was alive for maybe about two years. Yeah. But we stayed in touch um, mm -hmm. as I did with all of those guys. I mean, Press Pal, Tom, I was in touch with Tom Morgan up until just weeks before he passed. Yeah. These are, and these are luminaries in the, yeah. in the yeah, blank. Yeah. yeah. And and I think the only ones that are still alive out of that are Kerry Burkheimer is still mm -hmm. kicking up in Washington. I spoke with him. It's been a few years, but yeah. uh, and I think Tom Dorsey uh, mm. from Thomas and Thomas. Is yeah, still, yeah. But uh, you know, Press Powell. When I interviewed Press, I mean, he had he had cancer. And, yeah. And, you know, and and I still have this really cool collection. I think I told you. I actually bought a domain name and I'm trying to get all this stuff up there. I just don't have the time to do it, but I've got a lot of really neat stuff that press pal sent me that the world has probably never seen newspaper articles that are 75, 80 years old about the first guy to ever use the double hall in a competition. In oh, a wow. Yeah. Just cool. Historical. Like yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Um, press was a wonderful guy. All of those guys were, I mean, Dick Kantner was just as kind as he could be. Right. I got to be pretty good friends with Dale Clemens because of that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, gosh, I'm trying to think of who else. You know, Gene Bullard, he ended up, it's kind of funny because when when Tom was the one who found Gene, I remember I was standing in my kitchen. Tom called me up and said, man, I just got a phone with Vic Cutter. Gene Bullard's still alive. and Because we all thought Gene had been dead for years. Right, he, he like dropped off the face. Yeah, yeah. Right. I can't be too critical of him of that because I did the same thing in 08. <laughs> I was going to leave it out. I was going to leave it out. Yeah, but um, <laughs> but Gene, uh, I'll never forget, Tom said, yeah, Vic said he's living in some retirement community in the hill country of Texas. I said, well, Tom, I live in the hill country. Right, yeah, that's close. So I get in the phone book and there's Gene Bullard in Kerrville, 23 miles up the road. Oh, yeah. And so uh, Gene and I kind of got to become friends. And, and right. uh, But yeah, all of those guys were... Uh, you know, I owe a real debt of gratitude to all of them because never once did I place a phone call and say, hey, look, you know, I'm a writer for Rodmaker magazine. We're doing this, you know, this series of articles, you know, sort of a historical thing, right. profiling people who have been influential in the business. And and not one of them ever even blinked an eye and said, eh, yeah. I'm not sure about this. You really don't have a, a lineage as a writer, you know, right. they, just, yeah. they just said, heck yeah, let's do it. You know? Yeah. And so. it's, it's really the only kind of compilation of these things. And so if you're interested in these articles, they are the ones that ran and published are available in back issues of Rodmaker magazine. Yeah. Um, along with a number of other articles that are not interviews that are more how to and technique specific articles that Andy's done about yep. turning about carbon fiber grips about finishing and other things. Yep. But if you're interested in that, it's fascinating stuff. And I, I'd love to see you bring the rest of that forward because I know you did a lot more than ever showed up in the magazine. And I part of why it interests me is. Andy, I think you may be the only one who knows this stuff. I mean, I think you yeah. had conversations with yeah. people that nobody else had. And and I, I certainly know whenever I have a historical question or who worked where, when, or is this the right person to attribute to, yeah. I can always reach out to you. And you know, because you've talked to all of them. Yeah. It's fascinating stuff. We could do an episode on that alone, sure. right? And, yeah, and I'd, sure. I'd love to get it captured because I don't want it to be lost, right? Like, Well, you know, there's so much interesting stuff out there. And a lot of it was contained in those articles, but the subject came up not long ago in the generation four Facebook group. Somebody said something about one of the rods looking like a jet airplane. And I said, well, you guys know, you know, Dick Kantner, that was the owner of graphite USA. You know, he was the one who built the titanium skinned fuel tanks on the Lockheed a 12. Right. Yeah. And everybody went, what? And yeah. Yeah. Was, yeah well, and Ralph O'Quinn figuring out structural bonding on the, on the, the B2 bomber, B1 bomber, whatever it was. Yeah. There was right? a like, lot of that stuff, you know, yeah. I mean, um, 
you know, that, that people don't know. It was funny because uh, I have had a, about a 16 year relationship with a particular fly fishing guide down in Corpus, Captain Freddie Lynch. Mm-hmm. So I've been a staff writer uh, on Sexy Loops fly fishing for about five years now. I write the Monday the Monday column on Sexy Loops. And okay. there was a fellow from Colorado uh, by the name of DK, who uh, evidently reads my my Monday column. Right. And he, I've mentioned Captain Lynch in there many times. And so DK has started coming down and fishing with Freddie. Oh, cool. Yeah. And so the other day, uh, I got a phone call from DK said, man, I'm going to be down there for a week. I'd love for you to come down and fish with us. And I said, yeah, absolutely. So we went down there, you know, and, and uh, got to talking about the history of Sage, you know, and a lot of people don't understand that, you know, that Don Green that started Sage worked at Fenwick with Jimmy Green. Right. But prior to that, he also owned a blank manufacturing company called Grizzly. Yeah. And Grizzly, I think, was making blanks for Fenwick or something to that effect. And yeah. then I think Fenwick bought Grizzly, if I'm not mistaken. This is all like in the mid-1960s. And, yeah. and Jimmy taught Don to cast a fly rod. And then when, I believe it was in the early 80s when Woodstream bought out Fenwick, mm-hmm. you know, Don said, I'm out on this, you know, right. and went and started Sage. And then Jimmy stayed on about seven years and then went to work for Sage as a consultant. But a mm-hmm. lot of people get Jimmy and Don mixed up, you know, so I, because of the last name and sure, there's no right. relation. There, no you know? relationship. So, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, not blood relations. Yeah. No. And so we were sitting in Freddie's boat and I said something about Jimmy Green and, and Freddie said, oh yeah, the guy that started Sage. And I went, well, <laughs> not exactly, but <laughs> yeah. sort of, you know, right, so, right, uh, yeah. so yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I have a lot of um, been fortunate to have been around a lot of that historical stuff. And, yeah. Well, it's awesome. And, yeah, so, and yeah. then and then then I think if we keep it moving here, then you did the wood turning DVD, right? Yeah, that was a result. One of my very first mandrel customers was a guy from Dallas that uh, had just started building rods. His name was John Tebbets, and John was a uh, was a world renowned plastic surgeon. Right, I was gonna say he was a plastic surgeon, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, with a specialty in breast augmentation. He had invented some of the very first anatomically correct breast implant bags called the gummy bear implant. Okay. And um, John, I'm going to uh, be honest with you. I never thought we'd wind up talking about breast augmentation yeah, on the mastering rod building podcast. All kinds of, uh, yeah, we'll see. Yeah, my, well, who knows? Maybe my, uh, maybe our, our listening is going to go up dramatically. Yeah. Just, <laughs> hashtag so, breast augmentation. So John had bought a set of mandrels from me in 2002. And um, he called me up one day and he said, uh, he said, John was a fascinating guy. He, um, had a lot of varied interest wildlife photography he was a really talented photographer mm-hmm. he was an artist you know mm-hmm. and he uh and whenever he wanted to learn something he would always find the expert in that respective field and then go spend like a week with them yep you know and so i remember he called me up one day and he said hey i've got a well what happened was roger siders up at Flexcoat had mm-hmm. a little get together up there at the Flexcoat facility in driftwood mm-hmm. in 2002 october of 2002 and john flew down Mm-hmm. for that and so that was another sort of pivotal moment in my life because that's where sharon johnson and mike welsh from all-star offered me the opportunity to be an all-star distributor so right. a lot of good things happen there but yeah, um, yeah. Uh, so john flies down and we immediately strike up a friendship i mean yeah. he was a crazy ball-headed redneck just like me and <laughs> we get this uh we get this we get this i mean it was, it was immediate and right and so uh, he's a bromance, really, bromance, really, yeah. really good fly fisherman. Yeah. Um, 
he won the Don Hawley uh, in 2001 with Rob Fordyce on the pole. And I think had at least one IGFA line class record with Rob on the pole as well. So yeah. had a big place over in lower Matacumbi key. And, mm -hmm. and uh, so John calls me up out of the blue one day and he says, Hey, uh, I really want to learn how to turn real seats. Mm -hmm. And he said, would it be okay if I came down and, and stayed like a weekend? And I said, yeah, come on down. Well, I didn't know this at the time, but he had like this tour bus that was something like Eric Clapton would were in you know it was amazing and so he drives this tour bus down and he stays in san antonio for two or three days and i showed him how to turn real seats and he said look you know he said uh he said i feel like i owe you something for your time why don't we uh instead of me paying you and i said i'm not gonna take any money yeah, yeah yeah and he says why don't you he said if you can find your way to miami and then down to lower matacumbi key he said i'll take you tarpon fishing for a couple of days and I said, that sounds like a deal to me. I think you're getting the short end of the stick. There. Right, you go. Right. So yeah. uh, later that year in July of 03, I flew over there to Miami and found my way down to his house. And it's so funny because I didn't know that Rob Fordyce was his guide. And right. of course, I had known of Robbie off of Walker. Oh, sure. He was all he'd been on there since he was a teenager. Yeah. Legend. Right. So, yeah. So I walk into the living room, you know, and there's Fordyce standing there. And I was like, a little shell shock because oh, it was sure. like, starstruck for sure more you know yes yeah. so, um so we we spent a couple of days over there in the keys and i had been thinking about a, a wood turning video but john uh brought it up on the boat he said you know we really ought to do an instructional video and i said well you know i've thought about that i just don't have the resources to right. handle something like that right and he said andy he said, I own a production company. We produce instructional DVDs for plastic surgeons all over the world. Right. We and could, we could do some real seat for, for the Fox yeah. affiliate in Fort Lauderdale. And uh, he said, this, this is just show up at the farm in this February and we'll get this done. So Emily and I drove, we weren't even married yet. And we drove up and spent two days at the farm up in East Texas and filmed that thing. Yeah. It was a fellow from Fort Lauderdale that came over named Bruce, who was a videographer. Uh -huh. And this thing, you know, they really, it was the very first instructional resource released on the DVD platform mm -hmm. in the rod building industry. But over and above that, I mean, John had like the best of the best equipment. So at the time they were still shooting on mini DV tape, but it was it was right. all 1080p high def stuff. I remember Kirkman watched it one time and he called me and he said, Andy, he said, this, this sets a standard that nobody else is going to be able to, not yeah. anything that I did, but just the quality of the editing and the yeah. audio. Yeah. Because yeah. everybody else was sort of shooting stuff on a Sony Handycam. Sure. No, yeah. No yeah. And, you know, and rainy and the yeah. date down in the corner. Exactly. Yeah. You know, no lighting, you know. And, and, um, and for those of you who don't know, this is just, just for absolute clarity. The DVD is called The Wood Lathe and Rod Build. Yeah, yeah right? it hasn't been and, available in a long time, but I'm getting yeah. ready to upload it to YouTube. Perfect. Yeah, it's, so, it's it's the resource for wood turning for rod builders, in my opinion. And I have seen a lot of people demonstrate and teach these techniques since then. Um, and, you know, Lance Dupree does a really nice job specifically with acrylics, yep. but yours is still uh, the definitive guide. So yeah, if you're, it was if you're interested in turning highly figured wood for rod building purposes, I when that's great news that you're going to put it up on yeah. YouTube. People should check it out. Yeah. So, you know, the unfortunate thing is that, uh, you know, John became probably one of, if not my best friend, for the better part of 20 years. Yeah. And unfortunately he passed away last, oh, see, it was March of 2021, uh, 2022 yeah. or 21. He's been gone about a year, year and a half now. Yeah. And um, very uh, influential person in my life, both personally and professionally. Sure. 
that was a that was a great loss you know he yeah. not just he john was a really good fly tire yeah he was he was kind enough in 2018 to gift my my son who likes to tie flies who's his, also a very good fly tire now yeah. i have, a, sta- I have yeah. a bag full of his bugs yeah and a really right good now. fly fisherman too but hey, uh, yeah he's got more grand slams than i have on the fly. you know that friggin' Jackson, he um he broke two youth state fly rod records before he was ten years old. Yeah, it's unbelievable. And, and we didn't even register him. We just you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What's uh, remind me the name of his fly company? Uh, oh, it was Laguna Madre Fly Company. Yeah, you guys yeah. can check out Jackson Deer and Laguna Madre Fly Company. He ties yeah. he ties a very clean fly. Highly recommended. I use them in Louisiana and they work. So you know, so John, you know, he was he had a real artistic bent to him, and he gifted all this stuff to Jackson and. I would tell you, you know, there was like four or five notebooks in there that he had put together with recipes for tarpon flies, 35 millimeter photographs of each one. You know, it was incredible. It was obvious right. why he was so successful in his chosen field. I mean, yeah, really, really a huge influence on me. And, and right. uh, you know, that uh, that presence will be missed for a long time. Yeah, so I'm sorry. But but you know. uh, but yeah, so that's how the DVD came about. And yeah. Um, we had a great time doing it. Emily and I still laugh about some of the shenanigans that John used to pull because yeah, you told me some stories. Well, out of respect, yeah. we'll leave them all off camera. But yeah, he, no, he most of those are not. He to was be a told character, right? Company. Like, yeah, he was a one of a kind. <laughs> he was a character, man. You you knew when he was around. You, he was yeah. never a guy that you went somewhere with and you didn't. You were like, was that guy at dinner? I don't remember that guy. Yeah. You knew John was there. You know, if anybody's interested, you can jump on YouTube and search Dr. John Tebbets. There's several short little five and 10 minute mini documentaries about his influence in the plastic surgery world. Yeah. And um, just a, a fascinating guy. And a lot of Emily always used to say that going to visit John was like going to the Barnum and Bailey circus. It's something you wanted to do once a year for about two hours. And then you were good for the other 364 days. Right. Sensory <laughs> overload, you know, <laughs> but yeah, you know, going back to that deal at Rogers, I had, um, you know, when I first met Emily, that was to, uh, October of Oh two. She had invited me very early on in our relationship, first week or two. She had a wedding to go to over right. in uh, Baytown, I think it was. And and um, right around that time, Sharon Johnson had just bought a sponsorship for All Star on, on Tom's board. And so I sent her an email just saying, hey, thrilled to have you on the board. Local Texas guy. Been using the All Star stuff for a long time. Yeah. That was, and um, yeah. Tops and tails, so she, baby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and so she said, uh, she said, hey, uh you know, if you're ever in town, come on by the factory, I'll give you a tour. I said, great. Well, it just so happened about three weeks later, I was going to go to this wedding with Emily and and she had gone over there a day or two early. And so I said, well, to hell with it. I'll stop by All Star. Yeah. And so, you know, they were, I don't want to say struggling. They were trying to figure out how to market their fly rod blanks. They had a really good line of fly rods called the Austin series. Mm-hmm. Bill Gamble had been involved in the development of some of that. Anybody knows Bill. He's the guy that developed the FFF master certification program and uh, also a local Texas guy. And so trying to think, she gave me some samples of the Austin series. And the reason that she did was because John Tebbets had been using the Austin 1011 weight to really wreak havoc on the tarpon over in yeah. the Keys. Okay. And, you know, and John kept saying, you know, you got to figure out a way to get these things out into the community. And I told Sharon, I said, it's going to be a tough road to hoe for you to get somebody who's used to buying a Sage or a, right. or a Loomis or a Scott to buy a finished all-star rod. But who are not known as a fly rod company, right, known as know. the kings of inshore, right? Right. And so I said, but, you know, I think there's an opportunity here for us to get these things out into the rod building world, which, mm-hmm. you know, which is, shouldn't be a problem at all. So 
it was at that little get together at Roger Sider's place that Sharon approached me about becoming a distributor. And, you know, I would say that my relationship with Sharon and Mike was as pivotal as anything yeah. that John Tebbets did for me or, or Scott Wallace or Flip Pallet. I mean, right. I, I still keep in touch with Mike regular. I mean, we talk, you know, he's had a very successful career out at Shakespeare, Fluger, Abu Garcia, Berkeley. Right, right. And uh, Sharon has since retired. And I hear from Sharon about once a year, twice a yeah. year. But Mike and I, we we correspond uh, three or four times a year or something mm-hmm. like that. But that was, you know, that was, I mean, they gave me carte blanche access to that factory over right. there. I learned so much about blank construction and about, you know, how a factory works. And, right. and yeah. um, you know, they were really instrumental in that. Uh, you know, I'll tell you a funny story about the Austin series. It's a shame that those went away when Shakespeare bought them out. When I was with Rob and John over in the Keys, John had an all-star 1011 that we that we fished with. And we were sitting there at lunch one day and Rob told the story because he had been with Sage for mm-hmm. a long time. Right. And uh, he told the story about how uh, Sage would do product development on new rods. They would send them four different butt sections, four different mid sections, four different tip sections. At the time, they were doing a lot of three-piece stuff. You know, the right. RPLXI, I think. was Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they would send them and, and all of these would made up, okay, right. but they were different tapers, but the ferrule right. were made up. So right. they would number them, you know, and then, and, and Rob told me, he said, you know, the way we used to roll was we'd go out on the worldwide sportsman pier. It'd be like me and flip and Jose were heavy and whoever was hanging around and they'd have a cooler full of beer. And right. he said, you know, we'd just cast and we would swip swap out right. mid section to, and he said, you know, after a day or two of this, we'd come up with what we felt like was the best combination, but number four, mid number three, right. tip number one. Right. Now, the key to all this is that when they would send them, when they would send them these blank sections, they were unsanded. Okay. They they still had the snake belly finish on them. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And um, Rob said to me, he said, we would tell them, but number four, mid number two, tip number three. And he said, nine times out of 10, Jerry or whoever it was up there at Sage would call back and say, you know, that's the exact combination that we came up with too. Right, right. And so off we go to production. Six months right. later, Rob gets a finished Rob, sand, rod sanded, glossed. Right. He said it wasn't even the same. Yeah, yeah. It's the same. Uh, because you take out those outer layers of power fibers, it's a different thing. And so right. the interesting thing about that is he looked at me and he said, the all-star is what the Sage was before they sanded it. Mm-hmm. And he said, that's how good this rod is. And yeah. uh, he referred to it as uh, the dirty little secret in the keys. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so I was a, I at one point had an entire collection of all-star Austins. And in a mm. moment of weakness, I I sold them all. Somebody oh. a, well, somebody offered me a ridiculous sum of money well, for them. And it was take like, it. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it was well, more hey, Maybe someone will listen to this podcast has got some stashed around. Although if you don't have them, I don't know who would have them. But, you know, uh, we so, can hope. So John Tebbets was kind enough to uh, to leave me his rod building equipment, and rumor has it there's some All Star Austins in that collection. I'm slated to go pick that stuff up here in the next couple of weeks. So. Well, I hope there are for your yeah, sake. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so, so I yeah, remember um, I remember one day getting a phone call from you. I'm, I'm leading us into another topic because we still have so much to talk about. We yeah. haven't even got to epoxy yet, but this is all too good to to pass up. And you you said, hey. You ever uh, you ever use any gasket material in your cork grips? And I'm like, what? And he yeah. said, yeah, this gasket material. You need to go to an auto supply store or whatever. And you took yeah. some pictures and you were telling me how you're punching out, doing all this stuff. 
So yeah. now these days, now you got to remember this is a long time ago. These yeah. days, like every grip we sell, that was like Fuji, 96, 97, somewhere. Yeah, maybe. About. Yeah. At least yeah. that early. Now all the, all the cork grips that we sell at Fuji are almost all of them have a composite cork button. And we know what composite yeah. cork is. It's a rubberized yeah. cork. Right. Well, it was started life as a gasket material. <laughs> and the first, right. the first lunatic who started saying, man, we should start putting this on butts. We should start putting on the edge of grips. As far as I know, it was you. Yeah, and we, lunatic we were, is you a good way to describe that. And we yeah, were punching so, them out of sheets, and uh, and that turned into a barrel and exotic cork business a little bit for you. And now that's yeah. everywhere. Now there's more. I can tell you about uh, more than three or four companies that all they do is exotic yeah. cork. But that was a new thing. Now that product yeah. I think existed, but you found it as a flooring material. So or... what happened there? That gasket material. I don't remember how I stumbled onto that, but I think I think it was my dad. Okay. Uh, because he used to work for uh, the local utility company here, and I don't exactly remember how that morphed, but he got some material that I have never seen since. And they called it at the time, he referred to it as corkaprene. It was like a neoprene cork mix mm -hmm. and they were using it for industrial insulation, mm -hmm. but it wasn't the dark material like you're used to. This almost looked like natural cork, but it would come mm -hmm. in sheets and it was really durable. It was incredible stuff. And so I don't remember how he came up with that or where we got that from, but it was scrap that he had commandeered from somewhere. Yeah. And then we, you know, I just started exploring. All right. Well, if there's this sort of uh, hybrid modified cork material, what else is out there? And so we figured out that you could go to a gasket supply shop and they had like, they had like scrap piles back in the back they where just... they would cut gaskets for, you know, for engines or whatever, you know. And then they'd have these little pieces that they couldn't do anything with, but they were right. perfect for what we were doing. So, right. yeah. so my, my dad, after he retired, he would, he'd roll out at eight o'clock in the morning, you know, and hit the gasket shop and come back with half a truckload full of right. stuff, you yeah. know, and all different densities and all different constructions. And um, you mailed me some pieces and I think I still have the original pieces, some of the original pieces yeah. in different thicknesses that you mailed me back in the day. So it's funny. I have a. I ran across a picture that you sent me probably in about 1998 of a spinning rod that you made, and you were fishing with one of those spin fly lines. Oh, I know exactly. It has yeah. a little thin little between every cork. Yeah. yeah, and there was, and it was a really nice picture with a brown trout and this rod yeah. that had the that had the. You had done like uh, sort of like I was doing, like just alternating natural cork with a one eighth inch piece of gas, sort of a tiger yep. stripe kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And uh, we had an, I still got the note that you wrote me with that, you know, yeah. uh, I still got that rod. comfortable handle or something. Well, you know, it's funny. Uh, a, a good buddy of mine that I fish offshore out of Orange Beach with a bunch, Captain Gary Farrow, he um, he does a lot of freshwater stuff, too. And he'll he'll kind of go. He gets invited to go on crappie trips and different stuff. Yeah. And he's like, hey, man, we're going to go crappie fish. You got to, and I'm always like, don't go buy a rod, you know, like borrow something from me. I got a million rods. Right. And uh, he went crappie fishing this spring, literally this year, this spring. And I gave him all my ultralight stuff, but I also said, hey, man, if, depending on how you're going to fish, sometimes I, these were like nine foot, four, five, and six weight fly rods uh, built as spinning rods, right? right? And it's like these things still dabble really well. You can just, you know, because we used to 
in East Texas, we just go put them up in these brush piles, like out of the John boat, you know, in shore. Very familiar with it. Yeah. Yeah. So he, he took those rods and fished them. He came back. He's like, man, I love that handle. You got to build me. I was like, oh my (laughs) gosh, that handle is old. I'll tell you how old it is. The Fuji real seat on it is gold, right? Like gold hoods and gold. It's all the gold has come off. Yeah. We haven't seen, no, it's still on there, but it's like, we haven't seen those gold in a long time. Right. So that's funny. So that kind of morphed into, you know, that was an 04 when I started, when I started with that material, I started exploring some alternative cork materials and stumbled across this company. I think they were in Pennsylvania that was making, they were making really highly figured floor tile. Right. And they were, they were somehow they had developed this process where they could, they would heat treat cork to get different shades of Brown, you know, whatever. And it really looked like wood. And so I called them up and they said, well, you know, we don't really sell direct. There's a company over in Houston you can buy from called High Tech Flooring. Right. So I called this gal over at High Tech Flooring and I said, look. Send me some samples. Here's what <laughs> I want, but right. I need this. I need this in like half inch thickness, not the eighth inch that they use for flooring. Right. And there was a learning curve there, Bill, because, you know, the first couple of cartons that she sent me, they had a urethane finish on the top. And then on the back, they had what's called an anti-curl treatment so hmm. you, you know you don't want that tile to curl and you know sure work, sure work yeah transit or whatever right so i ended up having to sand all that stuff off right yeah so she was so sweet i wish i could remember her name because at one point about six months into this project she said uh she said look you really need to be buying direct here's the owner's son's name and uh his name was rob mckee and um so I called up Rob and he said, oh, this, I get this a lot. You know, it's, it's the only way I've ever been able to make any headway in the rod building business is right. I just happened to get in touch with somebody who goes, oh man, I love to fly fish. This is oh, yeah. a great project. Let's right. do this. Let's you know? do this. Like yeah, under normal yeah. circumstances, they wouldn't touch this. Yeah. You know? It's not the worth their time. Like right. The fish, yeah. you know? so, right. so Rob and I, we had four or five different patterns of that stuff that we sold. And I named each one of the patterns after some Texas the, yeah. for the Texas Bay system down here. Right. And um, I had this little system where I had a carbide tipped hole saw and I would just stay out there and punch them out, punch thousands of these things out. And, you know, the stuff that's that's sold on the market now and that original exotic burl material, which I know you're familiar with. Very. uh, Well, it wasn't exotic burl. They just called it burl cork. Right. The exotic burl name actually was that that came from Tom Kirkman. Okay. I remember I was sitting in my office one day. And I told Tom, I said, man, I got this really cool material. You're going to love this. You know, so I right. sent him some samples and the next issue, a rod maker comes out and it's got my ad in there and it says featuring the new exotic burl cork. And I right. called him and was like, <laughs> where'd you <laughs> get exotic, bro? You could get, but it was a great life. name and I, oh, yeah. I couldn't argue with it. I went, Thomas, right. you know, like I didn't even have material in stock yet. You know, right. he was blowing and going with advertising. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. That material, the, the unique thing about that stuff was that it was very dense and yep. it was it was really, it machined really well. Clean. Yeah. And it was very durable. It wasn't right. like the burl cork that you see on, not that there's anything wrong with the burl cork now, right. but, and in a way, you know, the burl cork that's on the market now is better because it's lighter in weight. But my stuff was, it was almost like, it was almost like a hybrid between cork and wood. Because yeah, I was going to say it turned treated. a lot more like wood. You had to, yeah. 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 It was, and it had some weight to it, but yep. You know, you could use that to your advantage if you had a tip heavy blank or something. Sure, right. I mean, yeah. All kinds of ways to, you know, I used to do some things like I'd take a one and a quarter inch ring and bore the middle out of it about three quarters of an inch. So there was this big giant hole and then throw some 
foam in there, you foam know, arbor in there. Yeah, yeah. Bring down the weight, you know, there's all yeah. kinds of ways to work around that. But yeah, that was a, and at one point we actually had them make us that stuff in one and a half inch blocks. Mm. So you didn't even have to glue up rings anymore. Right. Yeah. It was yeah. just like a, it was like a stick of wood, you know, and right. I would pre-bore, yeah. pre-bore those turning blocks with, you know, with a three eighths inch drill bit or whatever. And, yep. and uh, it, yeah, it was uh it was it was a cool material. I don't know if it's well, still it's, out there or not. So well, a whole lot of burl cork is, and its acceptance yeah. is wide now. So again, I, I appreciate very much you being a dabbler and sort of leading us all there yeah. in the first place. Steve, um, Steve Juan, and I talk about that from food. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I know Steve uh, well because you know, yeah. he's real into the burl cork. You know, right. And he said something about burl cork, and I was like, brother, you don't know burl cork until you've been breathing that crap for twelve hours straight <laughs> out in the two hundred square foot shed. You know, <laughs> in a hundred degree heat. You know. For for yeah. 10 days in a row yeah 100 yeah, yeah. humidity down here in south yeah. Texas. oh yeah absolutely yeah. <laughs> after that you know i mean that's kind of when the carbon fiber thing came i was gonna on. say that's where i was going can we talk about yeah. my very very favorite so you call me one day true story and say man i'm playing around with something i think it's gonna be unbelievable <laughs> and you proceed to tell me this long story about i want to say your prototype modeling buddy at the shop you were still working for yeah. the cash register distribution yeah. company and yep. uh, he, that guy was still your neighbor and y'all were always collaborating, doing interesting things. And yep. I want to say he had been working on optimizing some carbon fiber and fiberglass prototypes yeah. for prosthetics or something. Anyway, I don't know had... what Scott was doing with that, to be honest with you. He always had about 10 things going. At one. I right. still talk to Scott. Um, yeah, yeah. But uh, so, you know, I want to preface that by saying that when it comes to the carbon fiber stuff, I didn't really invent anything there, you know, and so much of this stuff is it's just the ability to look at something in a different industry and go, how can that be adapted over here? Like foam core sandwich construction has been around for 50 years. In look fact, at every boat, every fiberglass boat yeah, hole on the water. Yeah. <laughs> right. uh, Dick Cantner, you know, that's how Dick got into building composite stuff was he and a buddy were building composite snow skis with balsa yep. cores, I yep. think, or something, yep. you know, so. Yep. So, you know that that sandwich core construction is nothing new, and uh, I went over I went over to Scotts one day, probably in two thousand six, and I don't remember why I was over there, but he had these sleeves that worked on sort of the Chinese finger cuff principle, you know. Yep. And he was showing them to me, and a light went off, and I said, because I'm always looking for a way like to make stuff lighter, right? And yeah, make it more high performance. Right. I really don't care about how it looks. Right. I really, I really don't. Like, yeah. I want to execute well. But I don't care about making it overly pretty. I want it to be functional. Yeah. You right. know, yeah. And so I saw an opportunity there to use a core that was lighter than cork. Right. Uh, you know, to hopefully make a grip that was lighter than cork. And so right. what happened was uh, I the very first one I ever built, I still have this email somewhere. Tom and I always used to joke and say that Tom Kirkman and I used to talk more during the day than my wife and I talked during the day. Sometimes <laughs> we talk two or three times a day. I, I, the very first one I ever made, I made out of two pound density foam. Yeah, I was going to say, I remember using that super light foam yeah. and it would wallow out. And you had a, one of your buddies or a guide on the coast who called yeah, it right. his ergonomic rod because it would move. Yeah. <laughs> so the very first one that I ever made was a carbon Kevlar blend. It was that yellow and black. Yeah. And I, and I, and I made it with two pound foam, had sort of a palm swell to it. And I remember I sent a picture out of that. I, I sent that picture to Tom and he immediately responded and he said, Andy, do not tell anyone about right. this. Right. Yeah. He said, you may end up selling <laughs> millions of these to a company like St. Croix or Loomis. You right. Know? And I went, ah, you know, not really sure I want to be out in the shed building right. 
carbon fiber grips 24 right. hours a day. You right. know? So the second one I built was a blue and black that I built for Freddie Lynch when he and Jeff Clarkson were, I was building their rods. They were FLW Redfish team. That yes. Yep. Okay. So I built one for Freddie and I'll never forget. Uh, I showed him that in the parking lot of the Red Roof Inn in Corpus Christi, Texas on SPID at like four in the morning, you know, right. we were standing out there and he was like, well, I won't tell you what he said. It was holding <laughs> something. And, uh, and so same reaction I had when you said, yeah, and so I said, take this out and fish with it. Well, they fished with it for about three tournaments, but then that two pound foam started hollowed out. Yeah. Started to crush, you right. know, it would, it just couldn't handle the grip pressure. Right. So that's when, you know, and t I had bought a whole, this is funny. I reminded Tom of this a while back and he didn't remember this, but I had just bought, uh, I was buying a lot of liquidation stuff from all-star and right. I had bought this giant box of cork grips. Right. And some of those grips had more fill in them than what was desirable. Sure. And so, so Tom came up with this idea. He said, well, why don't you use those cork grips to put that skin over? Now he didn't remember telling me that. Yeah. And the other day he said, yeah, don't you remember what well, I say the other day, it was a year or two ago. He said something about me using those cork grips. I said, Tom, that was your idea. And that was yeah. a great idea. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I you what what else were you going to do with them? Put heat shrink on them. Yeah. Yeah. Like so, but you know, to be honest with you, Bill, I had, uh, you know, my name has never really been attached to that carbon fiber grip construction as maybe as much as I would have liked. Right. But I kind of lost interest in that when I couldn't make it lighter. Yeah. If I can't make it lighter than cork, I'm going back to cork. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, like, I, so that's, so that was kind of my thing because you had to use like six or eight pound density foam yep. in order for it to hold up. Right. And at that point, by the time you add a skin over the top, you layer it with epoxy take into consideration that it's a woven material. So now you got to fill the spaces with right. epoxy. Yeah, yeah. Not to mention that glass is about 30% bigger in diameter than carbon is. So you got more weight there. You know, yeah. I, everybody loves it because it looks cool. And I totally agree. I think it looks great. But to me, it was like, okay, that didn't, that didn't, uh, that construction method didn't achieve what I was after. Right. Now, having said that, I think I've told you and I, and I told Jared Taylor this, I have developed a method of using two pound foam where you can make a grip that's about 60% lighter than the stuff with the woven sleeves. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, that's for another day. Huh? I'm not telling. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> good for you, man. You don't know everything to us. That's good for you. But yeah. So, you know, I, I'm tickled to death that, you know, Tom really took that ball and ran with it, you know, and, 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 you know, I, I did write, you a, guys wrote the articles, you published it in Rodmaker magazine. Yeah. And that yeah. Was the I wrote the time. article yeah. that one called aerospace meets angling. And, um, and then after that, I kind of got away I, from it. You know, yeah. I, you know, I mean, it wasn't purposefully, it was just like, okay, that didn't achieve what I wanted. If the guys want to make that because it looks cool, um, have a nut, you know I mean? Yeah. Like, right. I think that's great. You know, right. but that's just not me, you right. know? But yeah, that procedure and Scott Wallace and I talk about this all the time. You know, I, I mentioned to something to him about a year ago about carbon fiber grips. I said, I said, you know, you're really the one that was responsible for that being so popular in the rod building industry. And he looked right. at me and said, and I've made so much money. Off yeah, of exactly. It. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Couldn't buy a cup of coffee with it. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, well, so. on behalf of all the rod builders everywhere, I really appreciate you sharing it because I do like them and I do think they're functional in, in after a fashion for certain applications and I use them all the time. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. And I tell people all the time, I don't, I, everything I know, this is all Andy's fault. And then also Captain Mike <laughs> Peterson at Riley Rods, he figured out 
some ways to produce them in, in higher volume with, with uh real consistency that helped me out yeah. a lot too. But, uh, so I, yeah, we had to talk about it cause it's one of my favorite things in the world. And I run into people all the time who don't know that's the origin yeah. of them. So, uh, well, you know, if, if you understand some things and I, and I'm by no means an engineer, but sure, not sure. close, uh, but if you understand a few basic things about, about laminate construction and you know, some other things I'm not willing to mention, but, uh -huh. uh, but it's basic stuff. You know, right. I mean, it's, yeah, just, yeah, it's basic yeah. stuff. If you're willing to experiment and thinking a little bit outside of the box, there are ways to use two pound foam. Yeah. You, you know, you and I share a mutual friend in Jared Taylor. Absolutely. And a couple of years ago, I had a split grip that I had made with this technique with two pound foam and I set it on a digital scale. Well, first I put a piece of cork on there and it was like, uh, let's say 0. 0.75 ounce, you know? Right. I took a picture of that, sent it to Jared. He came back and he said, no, what is this? And then I took a picture of the carbon grip that I had made and put it on there. And it was like 0.26. And he just went, oh my God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I just, you know, I don't know, man. I'm always have these crazy ideas floating around in my head about well, keep stuff. keep doing it, keep yeah, doing so it. So I just don't have the time to entertain them all. So, yeah. Well, uh, speaking of great ideas, uh, another major one, and 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 I promise people we're going to get to talking about epoxy. And so you are the one who developed and and worked with a formulator to develop uh, Threadmaster, and at the time it was the first purpose-built rod building finish that wasn't just another product well it was a purpose-built you were a builder you were looking for specific qualities you sort of went through a bunch of prototypes you developed a regular and a light no you that's or, no 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 that's uh so uh, we need to give ralph credit really okay, because okay. ralph ralph o'quinn yeah ralph o'quinn from trondack really was the first guy he he really formulated because ralph was a formulator yeah um, he was yeah he was really the first one to do what he felt like was a purpose-built epoxy. Well, and that's probably Duragloss uh, for... Yeah, well, it was or... that... Uh, he had that other one, too, that I can't remember. Do you remember he used to send us all kinds of crazy samples of stuff? All the time, And yeah. I'd get these bottles that were like that were like solid, and he'd say, well, you know, you got a microwave. Put it in the microwave, seven yeah. seconds, and I'm like, <laughs> yeah. So... But uh, so real quick, those... just to, so Ralph is now passed, but yeah. Ralph is a chemical engineer and Ralph worked on several projects uh, during after right after, I guess, World War Two uh, with Boeing. And uh, one of his really signature things that he did was the what ended up becoming the B the B-1 bomber, I guess, they were having trouble with the design of this plane, which had incredible range and incredible payload and all this kind of stuff. Too many rivets. They couldn't make it work. And he figured out how to structurally bond the airframe and the wings. And it literally got that project up off the ground. Him and his team, he would defer yeah. and not give credit. Right. Since subsequent to that, when he retired uh, from Boeing, he uh, was still up in Washington and he uh, started selling that product as Rod Bond. Basically, he he optimized it, tweaked it a little bit for yep. rod building. And then you're right. He did do some design. And so Permagloss, which is a really good urethane one part moisture cure finish was from him, Duragloss and some of these others. So, yeah, he he was a little bit yeah. of a mad scientist. And, and I like to think. That's kind of what got you interested in epoxies, but I don't know if that's true. No, or no, you know that's a funny story. So I'm gonna I'm gonna show you something here. Okay, I like to refer to this as for those holy. of you who are only listening. He's unbuttoning his shirt. Yeah. He's taking off his. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I like to refer to this as holy water. Okay. Oh, he's got. Oh my goodness, is that eight eleven? Probably the last remaining bottle. Is that eight eleven? Eight eleven. Yeah, he's got. A, he's holding up a bottle of Gutebrod Color Preserver Number Eight Eleven, which is like the holy grail of yeah. 
substances, elixirs. So th- th- we can segue into epoxy here. This is going to be a little bit, I'll try to make this as short as possible. But when Gudebrod discontinued that material, I think that was about 2003. Okay. I kind of thought, man, if I could, and I don't use color preserver, which is what's right. so stupid about I don't it. either much, you but know? yeah. I kind of got to thinking, boy, there's really no worthy successor to that, mm-hmm. to that material. Mm-hmm. And so I started a hunt for understanding what made color preserver work. And 20 years later, I think I've got a pretty good handle on it. But yep. so I started uh, looking for color preserver and it just started out like I would go to craft shops and I'd try like Mod Pods or whatever that stuff is. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Stuff like that. It became pretty apparent that 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 wasn't going to, you know, like Bill Stevens always used to say, oh, you know, watered down Elmer's glue works good or hard as nails nail polish works good. And that's right. okay, but it wasn't nearly like what this was. Yeah. You know, Ralph was convinced that Gudebrod 811 was a hybrid urethane acrylic mix. Mm. And that is incorrect. I'm trying to think of how the timeline went on this. But so what happened was, and I have to choose my words very carefully. Here. Yeah, yeah. Don't disclose anything because I know that's still a very viable product and live and in play. Yeah, yeah. So I, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to put out any proprietary information because Threadmaster is still a very viable product and right. Whitehole's doing a great job with that. Yeah. And they're also Gen 4 customers. So I want to treat mm-hmm. this with as much respect as possible. So, sure. so what happened was I started trying to call chemical manufacturers mm-hmm. and I can tell you exactly where I was almost down to the time of day. It was about three o'clock in the afternoon on the corner of Kings Ranch Road and Highway 16 in Pipe Creek by God, Texas. Approximately. Yeah. <laughs> and I called up this chemical company. Yeah. And a fellow by the name of Richard answered the phone. And I said, look, here's who I am. Here's what I'm trying to do. And, you know, and I work in the fishing rod business. And he said, oh, well, you, you need to talk to our chemist because he might be able to help you. And so he transfers me over to a guy named John. And John says to me, keep in mind, this was around the time that I had become good friends with Gene Bullard. Okay. And Gene was really trying desperately to get back in the finish business. He had approached me. He had a sample of, of what I guess is now being sold as Diamond 2. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't the original Diamond 2. I believe that material was formulated by a guy named Brian Shoik up in Washington State. Okay. It was kind of what I heard through the grapevine. But this material that Gene had was not the original Diamond 2. And so I kind of, he, he was, we had become good friends and he was really like, I really want you to be the guy, you know? Mm-hmm. And I said, uh, let me think on it. I didn't really want him. I told everybody, man, Ciders owns that business. Right. Flexcode is a good product. Right. You know, I mean, yeah. like there's no reason to reinvent the wheel and everybody goes, well, yellow's bad. Yeah. Well, they're all going to do that eventually. Right. You know? Right. So, yeah. so I was very much. So when I got in contact with this fellow, John, up at this chemical company, he says, well, look, he says, I got a deal for you. He says, I will. He says, I've got a guide wrap finish here that we've been trying to get on the market for about two years. But we don't know anything about the fishing rod business. Right. And I said, well, what are you getting at? And he said, well, I'll make you a color preserver if you sell our guide wrap finish, help us get it out on the market. And I said, I said, John, I'm not interested in that. Roger Siders has got that wrapped up. Flexcoat's a good product, been around for a long time. Be good hard people to too. Ask Ralph O'Quinn is very hard to make inroads into the Flexcoat business. You know? Right. Yeah. And um, and he said to me, he said, well, you know, he said, uh, we really need somebody. He said, why don't you just let me send you a sample? And I said, John, I'm really not interested, you know, and he just kept, you know, and finally wouldn't let I, it go. Yeah, he wouldn't let it go. So he sends me this sample 
And so I go back over to Gene Bullard's house a couple of days later and Gene says, well, take this diamond two and see what you think about it, you know? And so I kind of decided, okay, now's as good a time as any to run a comprehensive UV test. So mm-hmm. if memory serves me correctly, I did Gene's diamond two, uh, aft coat. You remember aft coat used to have oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. aft coat. It was a two to one mix. Sure. Yep, yep. Yep. Glass coat was still on the market at the time. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if Tom was doing that or if that was a rich Garbowski thing or I don't know. I don't remember, but glass coat, flex coat. And then I did what the product that this fellow John had sent me and dude, it wasn't even close. I mean, like it was not even close. Yeah. I mean, the flex coat stuff uh, yellowed in about three days and then diamond two wasn't far after that. And glass coat was about the same aft coat actually did fairly well. Um, I just didn't like the aft coat because it was, it was a two to one mix, Mm -hmm. you know, which you wouldn't think that would make life more difficult for some people, but it does. Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, the Threadmaster stuff just wiped the floor with everybody. And so I called John back and I said, Hey, you remember me? I told you I didn't want to sell your finish. And he said, yeah, it's pretty good, isn't it? And I yeah, said, really <laughs> I changed good. my mind. And he said, and he said, well, let's get it on. So yeah. that's what we did. And um, so high build came out first. Uh, about a year later, we came out with the, with the low build. And throughout the three years that I was involved with those folks, and they were so good to me. Yeah. I mean, another sort of Sharon Johnson, Mike Welsh, all-star situation where yeah. my career goes nowhere without John and Richard. You know, and uh, so we worked for about two and a half years on Color Preserver and finally came out with a product called Chroma Seal that was that was although it wasn't quite as good as the holy water. It was, you know, this is a 10 out of 10. Chroma Seal was probably a nine out of 10. You know, it was really good. Mm -hmm. And that was how that sort of evolved. I uh, in 2008, 2007, somewhere thereabouts, you'd think I'd remember we found out that Emily was pregnant. It's 2007. Yeah. And um, that was, uh, as I'm sure you went through with Liam, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's, uh, it changes things, your perspective. Oh yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, I kind of decided that I was going to try, you know, to phase out of this a little bit. And, you know, I wanted to be a really present father. And Jackson's birth, really sort of softened a lot of corners in my life and gave Mm -hmm. me a different perspective as to, okay, how much more do you need to achieve? You know, do you need to build something as big as flex coat to feel like you've, you know, you've done your thing, you know? Right. And I just didn't, it just didn't mean that much to me anymore. You know? Yeah. Um, I remember shortly after, uh, see Scott Parsons, Scott had been a customer of mine. Mm-hmm. And I remember Scott called me. Scott really wanted to get into the Burl Cork business. Yep. And I had just bought a pallet full of Burl Cork. Right. And Scott had, I think he had access to like some CNC milling machines or something out there. And so he called me and said, you know, are you interested in selling the Burl Cork part of your business? And I said, yeah, actually I am. And so I sold that to Scott. And I'll never forget about a week later, he called me up and he said, you got anything else you want to sell? And I, said, <laughs> I said, I ain't married to any of this stuff, bro. And so he, uh, we worked out a deal and in, um, so I was a stay at home dad for about a year with Jess. Yeah. And, um, and so in October of 08 is when I sold Lamar to Scott and okay. Scott did a great job with it. I and mean, we stayed in touch all of those years and, um, you know, it just didn't mean that much to me anymore. I'll never forget. I, uh, when all-star went out of business in 07 in Houston, I had, a uh, I bought a bunch of their equipment. I had these really yep. awesome wrapping tables and I bought all kinds of stuff. I had a, I had a diamond wrapping machine that yeah. would actually automated, you know, and I had bought some flex coat hand wrappers 
and mm-hmm. some of them were missing some pieces. And so I called, I called over to Flexcoat, and I don't remember who I spoke to, but um, it was a fellow that I knew. And uh, I said, look, you know, I need to order some pieces. He said, ah, oh, Roger just said to give you this stuff. You know, he said, no, it was just like some rollers or something, you know. Right. And he said, yeah, Roger said, you know, no charge on them. And I said, well, I appreciate that. And I said, you know, I've I, and I've always had a tremendous amount of respect for Roger. Mm-hmm. I haven't spoken with him in a long time. But, you know, when when I uh, developed those carbon fiber grips, I called Roger. First person I called was Roger Siders because yeah. uh, Roger and I had a long conversation about the possibility of a process patent because mm. I had looked at patenting that process and Roger gave me some really good advice, even though we were competitors at that point, mm-hmm. you know, in the, in the epoxy business. Uh, Roger always used to jokingly say, he say, Andy, we got to keep that money in Texas. <laughs> yes, know? there we go. And uh, so Roger and I have always had a good relationship. And I remember this particular FlexCode employee at the end of our conversation, he said, uh, he said, you know, you're the only one that's ever, that's ever made Roger stand up and take notice. Uh, and I, and I just went, you know, that's, you get respect from somebody like, like that, you know, that's oh, yeah. in this industry a long time. You can't ask for much more. Absolutely. So, so yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I sold out in October of 08 and um, started playing golf again and deer hunting and spending as much time as I could with my sons. So. Absolutely. But you also just, because this is relevant to the epoxy conversation, you yep. also got into knife making mm-hmm. and saw a need for some products. And so yep. you've, you've brought to market and developed blade bond and, and some different things, right? So every, and part of this is why we're going to talk about gen four, right? Cause yep. and that's kind of, you're here as the designer of gen four yep. and the sole distributor of gen four, you know, to, to everybody else who sells it. Yep. Uh, and obviously it's a product that's, very well loved has some very unique quantity qualities and everything else like that yeah Yeah, and i was very fortunate to be someone who got to test early versions and everything else so thank you very much that's always exciting for me to be a part of anything you're doing because you just got such a a track record but you also have some other products in between there that rod builders won't know blade bond and some of these things and you also make fusion dmx which i love Uh, yeah what I would say is a really, really good 15-minute version of a paste epoxy, which mm-hmm. I've never loved any of the faster setting pace, including yeah. Love Rod Bond. I don't like the quick bond at all. You know, the, the the only thing I can say about all these products is they are as good as anything that's ever been offered yeah. out there. I don't love the smell of a couple of the uh, paste. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about hardeners, that. but uh, yeah. yeah, you can anticipate that. Yeah. But so with that, so so you know, Andy's bona fides are developed thread ma- and brought Threadmaster to the market. Has done all this stuff that's really a big deal, Gen Four equivalent in the custom knife making market. Um, and I got a good buddy, Cliff Ivy, who uh, is a knife maker and was featured in Forged and Fire and all this, mm-hmm. and he uses this stuff down in, in Arkansas. So like i just share that because it's you've got a long relationship with messing with these formulations yeah. and, and understanding better than i do as a rod builder and most of us do who aren't chemical engineers yeah. the puts and takes of qualities you're going for yeah. and and when you when you gain this you give up this when you get this you yeah. get this if you want people to be able to mix it one to one by volume like there's all these little details yeah. that go into the epoxies that we use uh, for rod building. And, and that's really what I, I wanted to have you kind of hold forth sure. on a little bit. And, and so a couple of things that I would put out there as preface, all of these products are way better than we need for the job we're asking them to do. There's yeah, no, there's a lot of strengths. 
so part of why I want to set this up, and I know we're going to talk about this topic specifically, but people struggle with epoxies and adhesives and both the finishes and the adhesives all the time. And what I would tell them, and I tell them all the time, if you have a problem, it's you. It is not the product, right? So you are a, a voice of authority. You know, you've forgotten more yeah. about this than I've ever known. And I'm pretty into this stuff as a rod builder, right. uh, but I've never done any knife making or anything else like that. So let's let's talk about it. So first of all, epoxy in the first place, uh, you know, and, and really it comes into, and Andy gets on me all the time and, and I find myself correcting people. Epoxies don't dry. They cure, <laughs> you know, there's a difference between a coating and an adhesive. Yeah. Like, so yeah. keep, keep me honest as we go through this, but let's, let's talk about that. So there's, there's several different types of epoxy that we use in rod building. Why don't yeah. you talk a little bit about these for a second? So, I mean, the structural adhesive used in knife making and the structural adhesive used in rod building are identical. Yeah. I yeah. Mean, that usually is, is some sort of a, uh, what we would call, and I'm not a chemical engineer. So all yeah, of this, yeah. comes, you know, just from osmosis of being around these guys. Right. But most of those are going to be, are going to be using a polyamide hardener. Right. And you can usually always tell a polyamide hardener because it'll be like that dark Brown mm -hmm. or kind of a rust color, you know, right. that's not mm -hmm. across the board, but you right. know, uh, so um, the reason that we use those in a structural capacity is because they tend to have the most robust performance properties, mm -hmm. um, sheer strength, you know, that sort of thing. Right. Uh, they have a tenacious grab mm -hmm. onto whatever substrate it is that you're trying to glue together. I mean, of course, a lot of that depends upon how the surface is prepped as well. Sure, sure. Um, yeah. But uh, but generally speaking, the polyamides are going to have the most robust performance properties. Mm -hmm. Now, the 15 minute and the five minute, most of those are pretty much generic formulations. And they use uh, in the catalyst, they use uh, what's a uh, material called mercaptan. Mm -hmm. And uh, in the industry, uh, my, the rotten egg, uh, the rotten egg hardener. That's yeah, right. the rotten egg hardener, the rotten egg hardener. That's why those five minute epoxy smell so horrible. Right. And most of those are very generic formulations. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you go down to Home Depot, the Loctite five minute is mm -hmm. going to be almost identical to the Devcon five minute. They which sure is smell the same. To the yeah. Gorilla Glue. Yeah, know, so, yeah, yeah. So those have, uh, you know, there's much less creativity involved in a quick curing adhesive. Sure. Um, you don't normally find them in a paste version, uh, what we would call in the industry, the viscosity being thixotropic. Mm -hmm. And uh, fixotropic. Fix okay. Yeah. Fixotropic, which, fix you know, you can think of ketchup as a fixotropic material in and of itself. It's mm -hmm. sort of non-sagging. You agitate it a little bit. It'll slowly run. You know, okay. then you could have a completely non-sagging material like rod bond would be right. would be completely non-sagging. So, right. um, so th that's the basics of what we would use. Those two things in the in the rod building industry, you would either use a mercaptan based quick curing like Lance Dupree. That's all Lance mm -hmm. has used forever is five minute epoxy. Right. Now he's using my 15 stuff. But mm -hmm. but, you know, Lance is building hundreds of rods a year. Yeah, he can crank them out. Yeah, and does um, nice work. So the you know, the the difference there, we sit there and talk about the polyamide material having more robust performance properties. While that is true, you have to ask yourself. How strong does it need to be? How strong right? does it need to be? Yeah. You know, and so right. if you go look, when I introduced the fusion material to the knife making industry, I became really good friends with a guy over in Georgia named Walter Sorrels, who is a sword maker. Okay. And Walter has what I consider to be a YouTube channel that 
should set the standard by which all others are judged. It's incredible how good of a job he does. I mean, it's like watching something on the Discovery Channel. Wow. He's okay. super entertaining, got a great yeah. sense of humor. The quality is amazing. He's got all of this great equipment and he's a hell of a craftsman. Yeah. And so, you know, so Walter and I became good friends and he actually did a torture test mm. where he glued some knife scales to a, you know, just a piece of steel or something. And then mm -hmm. he put them through this regimen of, of abuse. And um, ironically enough, the Fusion 15 won, you know, it beat out J.B. Weld and I don't remember who else was there. So it just goes to show that under real world circumstances, sometimes the polyamide might not be the right choice, you know, right. so, yep. Yep. Uh, yep. just, it just all depends on what it is that you're trying to do. Epoxies historically don't have great, they don't have great shear strength or uh, peel strength. Yeah. Uh, because all of the, all of the forces being applied in one little section there. Mm -hmm. So, and there are some peel forces involved in, you know, when a rod bends. So, mm -hmm. I think that's probably why rod bond has been such a, a, a mainstay over the years is because yep. it does have pretty good peel strength. Right. Um, yeah. The fusion 15 has really good peel strength for what it, it is. Yeah. You know, so uh, it's not, it's not quite as stiff as some mm -hmm. of the others that are out there. Mm -hmm. So, but that can be a good thing too. Again, it's yeah. a, it's a combination of properties. Talk to us about the thread coating type epoxies too, if you would. Yeah. I, mean, I think this is the, the one people spend more time focusing right. on probably well, because, because you can it, see it and see it's it. visible. And that's yeah. right. That's right. So, you know, a lot of the thread coatings in this business over the years are repackaged bar top coatings. Right. You know, Ralph, uh, I didn't, you know, we talked about my relationship with Ralph. I didn't really learn all that much from Ralph. Okay. Um, most of what I learned came from John. Yeah. And then later from the gentleman who formulated generation four for me. Okay. So, most of what's out there over the years has been repurposed is classified as a casting resin. Right. Yeah. You know, and most of what's out there over the years has just been repackaged bar top coatings or tabletop mm -hmm. coatings, which is fine, except they don't really have the robust UV resistance that right. you would like to have in a fishing rod. Now, right. obviously there's been millions of rods built over the years with, with tabletop and bar top coatings and right. it's what it is, you know? Right. So, yeah. But I'm not sure if Ralph was really experimenting around with, you know, with UV inhibitors when he started Trondac, but that was the thing that really set Threadmaster apart. Yeah. Uh, was because John was a very, very talented formulator that had a background in paints and stains and, and a lot of other things besides epoxy. And so he knew what was up. Right. And he knew how to make this work. And, right. uh, you know, and that was independent of me because Threadmaster was developed you know, a little, a year or two before I got involved with it, they just couldn't find anybody who knew anything about the fishing rod business. And I right. just have to be the blind squirrel that found the nut, you know, yeah, yeah. So, but yeah, I mean, that's the big thing that everybody seems to look for, you know, is, is the UV resistance. And there's a lot of good UV inhibitors on the market. Now, the one that we use in generation four is completely different than the one that was uh, in Threadmaster. Right. Um, you know, the joke in the industry and something that I want to make sure that everybody understands is that, if you want the best long-term clarity that you can get, you're going to have to live with the hardener being a little bit yellow. Yeah. Because the UV inhibitors that keep it from turning yellow actually are, are yellow. yellow. <laughs> right. Yes. And John was the one who taught me that. He always used to say, if you want it to if you want it to keep it from turning yellow, you got to turn it yellow. Right. Yeah. Now the good part about that is is that 
it's it's not really all that yellow. Right. So right. You take you take three cc's in a syringe and you mix it with three cc's of resin. It's water clear for all right. intents and purposes. Right. You know? Right. So you know Brian from Bandit Custom Rods did a really good UV test. Um, I think it went on for 140 days or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, right. You know, it was, uh, and I always like it when my clients do that kind of stuff because it means more coming from an independent source. Sure, sure. Know? Because I still have pictures of my original. Oh, I know your tests. You, you did know? a lot of tests on the roof. Yeah, in yeah, Texas. I used to really, yeah. 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 But um, so that's the big thing about, about epoxies is if you want to stay clear for a long time, don't pay attention to what it looks like in the bottle. You know, you need to pay attention to what it looks like once it's mixed and cured a year down the line. Right. You right. know, and, and that's, that should be what's important. And a lot of people, yeah. you know, they go and they see and go down to Bass Pro or wherever, you know, where you can buy, you know, whatever rod finish you want. And the two parts look clear. And it's like, that to me is a red flag because I know at some point that hardener is turning right. yellow. It ain't staying know? clear. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it's going to turn yellow when it's cured and on the rod. And that's where it matters the most. Right. You know? Yeah. So, the big thing with generation four, and I think you'll probably remember this, is that this particular formulator was making one of my knife making epoxies. And I called up there one day and talked to the salesman and he, he said, hey, how, how did you learn a lot of this stuff? And I said, well, I spent a lot of time in the fishing rod business doing epoxy stuff. And, and he said, man, you know, we weren't even aware that that was a thing, you know? Yeah, yeah. Said, yeah, it's a thing. All right. And uh, it's a thing. And he said, uh, he said, well, you want to you want to take a shot at this? And I went, not really. Yeah. Let me, let me back up there. What happened was Scott Parsons in 2018, Scott Parsons called me the very kind gesture. He called me and asked me if I wanted to buy my company back. Okay. And and he said, you know, and I said, Scott, it's been your company as long as it was my company. And, right. Yeah. And he said, well, I understand that. But uh you know, he said, I felt it was the right thing to do was to yeah. call you and offer it to you. And I said, absolutely. Uh, really means a lot to me, but I don't need to spend X amount of dollars to get back in the epoxy business. I've, already, I've got this blade bond thing going and surely right. I find a casting resin somewhere, you right. know? Yeah, so, yeah. and he said, and he said, well, that's fine. He said, you know, if, uh, he said, if, uh, if it's all right with you, I'm going to approach, you know, some other entities. I said, Hey, you do what, your you, company. Do what you need to do yeah. for your family, man. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, that's, and, and he said, he said, uh, he said, well, I think you're leaving some money on the table, Andy. He said, I think there's quite a bit of uh, a demand out there. He said, nobody's really introduced a new, a new guide wrap finish in like 10 years or so. Right. And yeah, it's kind of stuck in my head a little bit. And right. So that's a month or two later is when I called up to this formulator and, and he said, man, you know, you want to take a stab at this? And I said, not really, you know, and he said, why not? And they're done that. Uh, right. Yeah. Kind of felt like going backwards a little yeah. bit. You know? Yeah. So, um, and at the time, Blade Bond was doing really, really good. And yeah. uh, so over a course of a couple of conversations, you know, he said, well, you know, we've got a casting resin here. Why don't you let me send it to you? And I said, sure. So he sends it down to me and it, and it was terrible. Yeah. I mean, it was really thick. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, at least once again, thicker than anything that we use in the industry. Yeah. It didn't handle UV resistance. Great. It wasn't on the low end, but it wasn't as good as Threadmaster. Yeah. And so, and again, you got no interest. If it's not clearly better yeah, than what's already out no. there, why would you even mess with it? Exactly. Yeah. You know, uh, you know, I would have ditched that for the same reason that I ditched carbon fiber grips. Exactly. Like, yeah. Uh, right. You know, so uh, it's not solving a problem. It's not bad. not solving a problem. So, yeah. but the one thing it did really well, it had this uncanny ability to release bubbles. Like, oh yeah, business, you know, yeah. And I remember I sent you a sample. I sent oh yeah, it blew my mind. Yeah, Randy Emrick, Tom Kaufman, you. I don't remember who else. Carrie Batson, maybe, maybe somebody. Okay, yeah. Carrie Batson. Mm -hmm. 
and y'all all, and I didn't tell any of you that the others were getting it you right. know, because I wanted independent feedback. Sure, sure. And so everybody came back and said the same thing. This stuff sucks, but man, does it release bubbles. You right. Know? Yeah. Yeah. So I called them back up and said, look, this is a starting point. It's not right. a really good one, but you know, and the guy said, well, you know, unless you're willing to buy it in 55 gallon drums, we're not really interested in making something special. All right. So I let y'all came to me. See and so, yeah. So about a month <laughs> or two later, I called back up there and I don't remember why, but I asked for the salesman that I had spoken to mm -hmm. and the secretary said, well, he's out sick today. And I said, all right, well, is there anybody else that I can talk to? And she said, yeah, there's a, another fella in the lab back there. And so his name was Richard also. And uh, so she transfers. I said, let's see what Richard knows. And so she transfers me back to Richard. And boy, did you ever get lucky. Uh, yeah. Richard. And so I said, I said, look, here's who I am. Here's, here's what I do. And he said, oh yeah, I'm kind of aware of what you were, you guys were doing. And, and he said, what's this going to be used on again? And I said, it's going to be used on fishing rods. Well, I'm a fly fisherman. This is oh, a we go. fantastic <laughs> project to be involved in, you know? So, so off we go. So he says, well, what is it that you don't like about this? And I said, well, stuff y'all sent me is way too thick. It, it had the blue dye in the hardener, which I is mean, very interesting, resin, yeah, right? But it was really dark. Yeah, too blue, blue. really yeah. dark. Yeah. And so I said, well, the first thing you got to do, and I didn't think the rod builders would like that blue dye. Yeah, yeah. I said the first thing you got to do is take that stuff out of there yeah. because they're never going to go for that. Second thing you got to do is we got to fix the viscosity, and the third thing we got to do is figure out how to up the UV resistance. But having said that, the, the what they call in the industry a defomer, uh, the mm -hmm. air release package. Mm -hmm was really good yeah and he kind of laughed and he said yeah he said we kind of stumbled onto that that was an accident but it is really good and yeah yeah so i said so i look i said look let me just do this so i sent him some samples of various finishes mainly uh, for comparative purposes in terms of viscosity yeah just to have them yeah, understand I said, like, here's here's how thick i want it i think right. i might have sent him threadmaster i don't because i had threadmaster some threadmaster in the shop at the time yeah and, yeah and uh and so he came back and he said all right, I'm going to send you three different samples. They're all pretty similar. The big mm -hmm. difference is the cure time. Mm -hmm. And uh, I said, all right. So we settled on the first, I don't remember which one it was, but it was the one with the quickest cure time mm -hmm. for generation four. The others had pot life of like an hour. And I was like, right. yeah, that's too yeah. much. You know? yeah. so, so it still didn't solve the UV problem. Right. And the, And the story behind the UV problem is that when I went to go do UV resistance on this new formula that he had sent me, I had these little white, they were, they were lids that go on an epoxy jar and they're mm -hmm. white. I mean, like bright white. Yep. So I put, uh, I put Threadmaster on one and I put Generation 4 on the other. And unfortunately it was in the winter time. And so there wasn't really, you know, high UV with heat and all winter, this. Winter in San Antonio is a wrong I know. thing. <laughs> I know. So, um. Richard says to me, he says, well, just, he said, look, here, go on Amazon, buy this UV lamp and you can kind of do a UV test indoors. I yeah. Said, okay. So I set up this UV lamp and monitor it over a period of about a month and a half. And ironically enough, the Threadmaster started to turn yellow mm -hmm. and the generation four didn't. Stayed the same. Yeah. Stayed the same. And I thought we got it fixed. Mm -hmm. So I go ahead and release the product onto the market and then there's a few guys out there that did some real world UV tests that came back and said, the UV resistance is not great. Mm. So what I did was by that time it was already spring. So right. I took the two samples and I set them out in the sun. Yeah. Threadmaster did better in the natural light than generation four did Interesting. in the natural light. And we came to the conclusion, the UV inhibitor in generation four was 
targeting a different spectrum of light than, than natural sunlight. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I'll never forget this. I called Richard back up and I said, you got to fix this like yeah. now. Right. You know? And so he said, uh, he said, all right. So he called up some colleagues and they said, put this in there. And it turned the hardener yellow, you know, like what you would like, you go in my shop right now, you'd look at those jugs and you'd say, what the crap is that? You right. know? But, yeah. Yeah. So, um, we stuck two more samples out in the sun. He was doing independent tests at his shop and I'm doing it at my shop. And every week he'd call me and he'd go, man, I had no idea that there was this level of UV performance out there. Like, yeah, it, yeah, yeah. It was far better than anything else. Threadmaster was a close second, mm-hmm. not overly close, but pretty right. close. I mean, yeah, Threadmaster yeah. is a great product. And yeah, it's still, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, somebody calls me following. and they go, hey, I like Threadmaster than Generation 4. I go, bro. Uh, buy it. Have at buy it. Buy it, man. Yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? Like, I had it. a hand in that too. So I'm tickled yeah. to death that you right. make. You know? Yeah, yeah. So that's how the Gen 4 stuff came about. If anybody's ever wondered this, and I don't know if anybody has ever noticed this or not, but the first, probably about the first thousand kits or so, maybe the first 1,500 kits of Generation 4 that hit the market, if you look at the label on the catalyst, on the lower right and left-hand corner, there's nothing there. Mm-hmm. When I started to add the UV inhibitor, I put asterisks in each corner of the label. So you'd be able now, to tell that was yeah. four years ago. So there's sure. none of the old stuff on the right. market anymore. Right. But if anybody's ever wondered, what are these asterisks for? That was so I could that tell somebody yeah. called me and said, this stuff is turning like iced tea. I'd go, look at your bottle. Are there any asterisks there? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so anyway, so that's kind of how the evolution of Generation 4. Right. And, you know, so I, I feel like this is one you and I've talked about a lot. I, I'm kind of with you. I fall in the camp of some yellowing is inevitable if you're going to use an epoxy. Right. Mm-hmm. And epoxy has a lot of other really positive characteristics. But if you think about it, the quality of how this performs on a fishing rod under actual fishing use, yeah. yellowing is one of many, many characteristics. Right. And I sometimes think people are obsessed with it. But they are. if you are obsessed only with that, you know, the alternative to epoxy that is going to perform better is urethane. Right. Yeah, but that comes with a whole different, a whole other set of trade-offs yeah, and sacrifices, yeah. right? So, look, I get the whole thing about yellowing because if I had eighty-nine hours in a color change weave, right? Like, I wouldn't want it to look like it was coated in iced tea either, right? You know? So, like, I I get that. Uh, the problem is, and Ralph O'Quinn and I used to talk about this. Some um, Ralphie always used to say, epoxy is far from the ideal guide wrap finish, right? But it's much better than anything else that's out there. Right. The problem is, and the the fellow that developed Generation 4 for me, he and I were, and he and I are still in touch. He sent me some two-part urethanes Mm -hmm. that were, man. (laughs) I might have tested some of them. I might still have some in my shop. I think you and Jim Trelikas. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, and there's pictures of it on my Facebook group. Anybody who's not a member, run over there and join, and you can scroll right. down about six months ago. Yeah, and it's the Gen 4 users group on Facebook. Yeah, 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 That's why exactly. it's a great group. Yeah, some really good um, builders on there. Yeah. So Richard sends me this, you know, these two cans of this. And I'm telling you, that stuff was so clear. It looked like the can was empty. Yep, yep. I mean, it was optical clarity. It was right. unbelievable how clear that stuff was. Right. One-to-one mix, just yep. like an epoxy. You mix it up, turns cloudy. And kind of comes back just like an epoxy does. Right. You let it cure. This stuff is like rubber. I mean, it's like you can twist it and you yeah. Know, you want to talk about not ever having cracking at your guide feet? Oh, yeah. Done. Right. right. Yeah. Like done. Right. Right. However, and so I'm sitting there thinking, this, <laughs> it's got it's got a tremendous amount of tinsel adhesion to the blank. 
you mm-hmm. know, so you don't get that clicking sound anymore. Sometimes yeah. it's notorious for epoxy where that, where that little. The, tent, under the foot. You know, yep. 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 You know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. I had such high hopes for this stuff. The problem with it is twofold. It has a very low tolerance for heat. So if you get bubbles in it, you can't get them out because the minute you try to torch it, it smokes and turns black. Okay. You are going to get bubbles because these urethanes are so sensitive to humidity and moisture in the air. Right. And I'm not talking about like half a dozen little micro bubbles i'm talking about something that looks like you put some mr bubble in a bathtub no yeah i i I, i've tested it boom right it is boom right you know is what it is it was so unuser friendly right due to the inability to tolerate moisture in the air right you know that you know trelika's was like you know he he said man the stuff is i mean you can just imagine what the clarity over one of jim's wraps oh gosh look amazing god almighty You know, yeah. I mean, you can just imagine what that would be like, but it was so difficult to work with. And unless you could keep yeah. the humidity in your shop down around like negative 5%, <laughs> I mean, you know, right. it, it was, it was just, it was I, not. I can't do it. that in Alabama. I, I know I can't do that. Either in here Alabama. in South Texas. Yeah. You yeah. Know? So, you know, so I, you know, I get these guys all the time that say, well, you know, surely your urethane's got to be better. And it's like, well, there's this balance. better at what? Right. It's again, it's this combination of properties right. and durability over time and, and ease of use and ability to right. store and, and a manageable price point too, right? Like people will only pay so much for a thread. And a shelf part. life. Those urethanes things right. have really short shelf life. Short shelf you know? life, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Once you open it, you know, I mean now this was a two parter. Yeah. It wasn't like permagloss. This right. was a two right. part. So you know, years ago I tried to get Threadmaster into the All Star factory. I used to go over there and pick up blanks once or twice a month. And we always used to go eat at this Mexican restaurant called La Hacienda. Mm-hmm. And we were sitting over there at La Hacienda one day. It's Spanish for the Hacienda. The Hacienda. That's right. And, uh, <laughs> I, you know, I here I go, you know, trying to get Sharon to put Threadmaster in the factory, you know. And she says to me, she goes, well, what makes this so great? And I said, well, it doesn't yellow. And she looked at me and she said, Andy, 80% of our rods will be lost, stolen, or broken inside the first six months. We don't give a crap what color right. those wraps right. turn. And I'm, yeah. I'm out. Oh, yeah, I'm I got out. nothing for you. you know, I got nothing for you. you. Know. Yeah. So, you know, like I, I get it, you know, that everybody, especially nowadays, you know, when I came back to the craft five or six years ago, I was really blown away at um, not just the amount of people that are engaged in decorative thread work now. Mm-hmm. But the overall quality and skill it's level has gotten better, really yeah. Good yeah. Proof, you know, yep. and so I get it. Like you want that to look good as long as possible, right? You know. Yeah. But then I come at it like, brother, you're a rod builder. If it turns yellow in three years, peel that sucker off and rebuild it. That's yeah, yeah. Your skill set, you know. Right? I mean, yeah. like, you know, and you could look at that possibly as an additional form of revenue too. You know, I mean, if yeah. your guys want, you know, I mean, they beat their rods up, you know, right. tell them you'll rebuild it for X amount of dollars in three right. years. Or, right. You know, there's, you know, Sharon and I used to talk about this a lot. And she said, you know, one thing that the custom rod builders need to understand is that by its very nature, this is a disposable instrument. We're not right. talking about a $10,000 Parker shotgun here. Right. You know, like this is, this is built to go to war. Right. Yeah. To be used and, and, as a and tool. by that very right. nature, it's, yeah. it's going to get, it's going to get beat up and scratched yeah. up and turn yeah. yellow. And, yeah. And, you know, it, it is what it is, you know, yeah. so. Anyway, 
And what, what causes the yellowing while we have an opportunity to educate everybody here? Yeah, that's usually a function of the polyamide chemistry and the hardener is just susceptible. There's really about four things that can, you know, that can cause degradation in epoxy mixed or unmixed light, heat, age, and exposure to oxygen. Okay. So, you know, when guys call me and say, how should I store this stuff? 70 degrees in the dark with the cap on. Yep. Okay. You know, that's, it's that simple. Yep. And if you're, you know, if you're concerned about it, having been sitting there for a year, mix them up and see what happens. Right. You know, epoxy is cheap, generally speaking. Right. Yeah. You know, when you break it down on a per guide wrap basis, it's a nickel per guy. Yeah. So let's talk about that a little bit too, because sometimes it's so funny everywhere I go, every time I teach a class on applying and finish with the spatula or anything else, yeah. People, people are like, well, how little can you mix? How little can you get away with mixing? Yeah. And you're like, and I always say the manufacturers recommend three CCs of each yeah. part at a minimum. Then I mix, I'll take Gen 4 flex cut and mix like a CC of each and it'll mm-hmm. set up fine. And I'm saying, as long yeah. as you're precise, you're just giving yourself very little room for error. Right. But you, it, they'll do it. It's, it's physics. It has to set up its chemistry, right? Like it doesn't change, but like you, you talk to a lot of rod builders, you troubleshoot yeah. a lot of problems. What would you tell people about proper measuring and mixing? Well, this is um, my favorite advice from Ralph ever. Ralph said, I said, Ralph, how do I know when it's mixed? How long should I mix it? He said, mix it till it's mixed, then stop mixing. And I was, and he thought that was the answer to the question. It's like you didn't tell me anything I could use, man. But so, I, so I what tell would you tell people? Yeah, I tell people all the time, and and the, and they think I'm joking, and I kind of am actually. But you know, <laughs> I'll 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 tell people they'll say, you know, can I mix like half a cc of each? You know, is that going to affect anything? And I go, look, man, I don't care what you do with the epoxy. You can mix right. it with peanut butter and take it out in your backyard and set it on fire for all I care. Right? You know? I mean, like. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. You right. Know? Yeah, so, yeah. Now, having said that, this subject just came up in the Facebook group like two days ago. Oh, did it really? Okay. Yeah, it sure did. So uh, here's what I tell folks, you know, and I even had a guy DM me in Facebook and he said, why is three CCs? Like, why is that what you recommend? The magic number, right. And yeah, again, because it said, sounds okay. like you're just trying to sell epoxy. You're like, oh, right. they throw away as right. much as they use. They'll buy twice right. as much. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and that's part of the reason I got out of the knife making business. That and and COVID it was not was not great for my knife making epoxy because most of my business was coming out of Australia. Yeah. And they had a lot of really serious lockdowns over there. Right, which right. so the blade bond stuff I discontinued about a year ago or so. I broke my heart because I had become oh. really good friends with a lot of those builders. But uh yeah. Anyway. It's a great product um, too. Yeah. Yeah, no, it really was. And the Fusion 15 is the same as what we were selling as blade yeah. bond stuff. Yeah. So yeah. that's still available. As far as mixing goes, three cc's. First of all, the syringes that most people use are graduated. They're three. They're three mil syringes. Right. So that's you know you just fill it up to the top line and you're good. Yeah. But the other thing is that three cc seems to be about the magic number where you sort of hedge your bets in terms of the margin for error. Mm-hmm. So you think about it this way: if you're off one tenth of a mil in a one mil mix you're off you're off you're right. most of these epoxies are going to have about a five percent margin for error okay but if you're off one tenth of a mil in a six mil mix you're well within the safe you're golden yeah, yeah. you're right. golden you know and so it's a rounding error these, yeah yeah and so i had these guys 
on the board the other day and a lot of them were saying, well, you know, I've mixed up half a mil of this and half a mil of that and it's cured just fine. And I told him, I said, guys, I've got all of y'all beat. I used to mix up drops the size of a pencil eraser right. of generation four because Jackson used to use it to coat the heads of his flies that he was talking. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, and so I did, you know, you mix up three cc's. Good Lord. You coat 3,000 flies. Not flies in the world. Yeah, you know, right. Yeah. yeah. You know, so um, I would just squeeze out little drops and about one out of every 10 times, I'd get one that would stay tacky. Yeah. I mean, like, I screwed that one up, you know, right, but right. Uh, I'm not recommending anybody do that. Please sure. understand it. But it but, just goes to show that it can it can work. Yeah, to get well, it the exactly problem, right. Bill, yeah. the problem, Bill, with mixing up those small batches, the problem is not the measuring. Because if you use syringes, most everybody's going to be pretty darn close. Pretty close, right? yeah. The problem is, is that if you put a half a mil of resin and a half a mil of hardener inside of one of those medicine cups. You don't even cover the bottom. Yeah. There's not enough volume to really get the proper mix. Yeah. The mix, the procedure, you know, and a lot of guys, they want to use these automated mixers. I'm not a fan because part of the part of the proper mixing procedure is to scrape the sides of the cup and you don't get that scraping action. Ralph O'Quinn is giving high fives in his grave right now. He is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Ralphie and I disagreed on a lot of stuff, but that was not that one was of them. That was not one of them. That's right. No, no. We actually agreed upon more than what we disagreed Oh, sure, with. sure. Yeah. And he thought the world uh, of you. Yeah, yeah, he was a good guy. So I still have my little spatula that he Me engraved. Me too. I, I, I do too. I've got my name yeah. on it. It's in the shop. Yeah. I tell people about it all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I put it in my little shelf just last night. Yeah. But so that's the thing is that those little small batches like that are really hard to get the proper mix because yeah. there's just not enough volume to get that. You know, Ralph always used to describe it as the cement mixer kind of right. thing. You know, you right. want you know, I explained to guys, you know, like when I mix, you know, I tilt my cup like this and then I use this motion. Right. And at the time I'm going in the opposite direction right. and scraping the side, right. you know, whereas most people just hold it like this and then go like this. Right. You're missing out on anything that's moved up the side of the cup. Right. You know, right. so, and that's where most people get into problems with ultra small batches is not really the measuring. It's the mixing. It's the mixing. Yeah. Well, and along those lines, let's talk about the notion of the bad batch, because I start every single time I teach anything epoxy and I say, if you, and I said it earlier, if you have a problem, it's you. Okay. This stuff is not a bad batch. Yeah. It's not a bad, like the, the precision with which this stuff is manufactured for one thing. The second thing is the bottle that you've got, whether it's a two ounce kit, a four ounce kit, a 16 ounce kit, a 32 ounce kit came out of the same drum. Right. So if it was going to be bad, They'd all be bad. Right. And that's where I, that's where not just yours, like literally thousands of kits would be bad. And that never happens. Right. I don't know if guys think that I mix this stuff up two ounces at a time or apparently, apparently. Yeah. You know, but I'm buying it in anywhere from 50 to 75 gallons, sometimes a hundred gallons at a time. Right. And so, you know, if there's a problem, you'd know. Yeah. The entire internet is going to explode. Right. And, and you'd be able to reproduce <laughs> it with bottles you have in absolutely. house. And that just, yeah, that just absolutely. doesn't happen. And so that's a good now, thing. Now, I will tell you that you, you know, you said in there that, you know, if you have a problem with epoxy, it's your fault. That's about 98% true. Okay. Uh, because most of success with epoxy is as simple as measure the right amount, mix it correctly. Right. Yeah. But there are environmental anomalies. Yeah. Let's talk about that. Yep. So are we going, are we going polyamine one, blush? What are we? Polyamine blush. That's okay. right. Yep. Um, and I, I ran into that with a batch of flex coat and it's not, that's not a, flex coat problem that's right that's an incompatibility with the environment in which you're working yeah, the from. only time i ever had it was with um was with uh, threadmaster so it it what it is is it tends to rear its head 
when you combine high humidity and low temperatures. Yeah. And what happens is you'll you'll see you'll get sort of a moist, almost oh. like a condensation effect, yeah, like a haze on top of your wrap. Right. Yeah. It's and it's that that material is called I think it's called poly amine carbonate. I think is what it's okay. called. I had it on a man. I was built this beautiful fly rod for a Texas Wildlife Association auction back in about two thousand one or somewhere thereabouts, and I had flex coat blush on me. Some of the older technologies tend to be, you know, Ralph would talk to you about cycloaliphatic amines versus mm -hmm. aliphatic amines and right. how the older aliphatic amines are a little more susceptible to that kind of stuff. Right. That's a little above my pay grade, although I would have to believe that, you know, it's true. But, you know, the big thing with that is just control your, control your environment, you know, control the temperature, keep it above 70 degrees. Yeah. I know that's hard for a lot of guys, especially in the Pacific Northwest and the Northeast. Right. Yeah. You know, I, I take a lot more technical support type phone calls and emails during the winter months than I do in the summer months. Right. I can tell you that probably the best finish that I've ever achieved on a rod was uh, it was in July of 2006 in an unheated metal building. It was probably 110 degrees in that sucker. And I swear to you, it it was, it was, I, I took that rod out to, it was a, it was a white CTS fly rod. Yeah. And uh, I had taken that rod out to the show a couple of times and people would always say, how did you get that so flat? And I go, you don't want to sweat know. it for it. Yeah. You don't want to subject yourself I'm, to that. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, the big thing there is control the environment mainly the humidity and the temperature yeah. are the, are the two big things. Yeah. And, and you've taught me this, so I'll, I'll make you talk about it in front of people. It's almost like, you know, in a perfect world, you'd work at 74, 75, 76 degrees and, but you can be fine colder or hotter than that. It's try to minimize swings, right? Like yeah, if you be and stable, right? So, you know, so epoxies cure through, you know, through an exothermic reaction, you right. know, so, the more heat you give it, the quicker this cross-linking is going to take place. Right. Conversely, I mean, if it's if it's uh, low, much lower than seventy degrees, you get down in the low sixties or the fifties. I mean, that stuff might stay tacky for days. Right. You know, it sometimes yeah. it might stay tacky forever until you get it up into a in, into a climate controlled room. You know, right. and and, and I get that a lot where guys off, will say, yeah. "Well, I'm working in my basement." It's like, dude, take that up into your into your bedroom or something. You know. Yeah. And, yeah. And then usually the problem goes away. Yeah, absolutely. Talk and that to goes too, you know, that's going to affect your pot life also, yep. you know, so you want to, you know, in order to keep the pot life where it needs to be, 70 degrees really seems to be the magic number, but you can bump it up to 75 or so. You're not really going to notice a major reduction in pot life. Yep. You start to get up above 80 or 85. It can kick off on you. It's going to yeah. start to go off on you a little bit, yeah. you know, yep. so Talk to me about uh, a lot of questions, a lot of stuff about how, when to recoat, right? So uh, again, yep. I won't ask you to speak to other people's products because we don't yep. even want to go there, even though I know you know the answer. We'll leave that to yeah. them. But if we talk specifically about Gen 4, what's your recommendation on if you're going to do two coats or maybe even more three coats, something like that? Uh, what do you advise people in terms of the coating time, recoating So time? you can recoat as Lance Dupree recoats in four hours. Yeah. You know, it, it, once, once that material that's already on the guide wrap is firm enough mm -hmm. that when you bring the brush over the top of it it's not going to drag or stick mm -hmm. now lance is skilled you know so he's he is very skilled he knows yeah. how to feather it on there you know right. but i think lance is recoating in like four or five hours yeah that epoxy will be green enough it'll be receptive enough that really you know i i like within 24 
If you're going to go longer than 24, if you go beyond about 36 or 48, you really need, well, I'm not going to say you really need to. It is a best practice to scuff with some Scotch-Brite to create a mechanical bond. Now, I get guys all the time, and even Lance said this the other day. Lance said, I've been building rods 30 years, and I don't think I've ever scuffed a guide wrap, and sometimes I've let them go a week. Yep. I'm sure it's fine. You know, I mean, the question becomes, are, are we looking for optimal adhesion or are we just looking for good enough? Right. You know, I mean, so again, you know, I mean, it's your rod. You can certainly do whatever you want with it. But if you're looking to optimize the performance, anything over 48 hours, I like to use a 7448 gray scotch bright pad. Yep. Um, you know, uh, Ultra sandpaper yep. tends to be a little too, too aggressive. aggressive for my taste, but the 7448 seems to be good. Yeah. Some of that is temperature dependent, you know, so if you leave that rod in a room at 60 degrees, you might be able to get by 72 hours without right, doing right. it. Right, yeah. right. It's a give and take with the variables, but sure. my opinion has always been 48 or less, no scuff, 48 or more scuff, not a yep. big deal. Okay. You know? And awesome. if you don't want to scuff, God bless you. It'll probably be fine. Yeah, you know? it's, yeah, it's been be fine, fine for me, I, you know, yeah. but yeah. So another one that we get all the time that I'd love to hear you talk about, if you don't mind, is light build versus high build, right? And yep. so, and again, I'll go on the record as saying, to me, my perspective personally is I can make a high build as thin as I want. All I got to do is apply heat and remove excess and I can get it so thin you can see every single little thread. So right. what do I need? What do I need with a low build? To me, High build does everything either one will do. And, and, you know, and also conversely, you can make a, a, a light build act a little thicker if it's too thin for you by letting it set a little bit before you start right. working with it. But to each their own, let everybody yeah. use whatever they want to use. To me, this is a technique thing. You can make either one work great for you, but, but you do get lots of requests for light. You yeah. do offer gen form, both the regular. And light yeah. Stuff. It's almost, I don't want to say mandatory, but you know, if you want to be competitive, right. Let's put it that way. Right. With gen four, the high build and the low build are the exact same formula. The low build uses what's called a reactive diluent, which is just a it's known in the industry as a rheology modifier. So you're mm-hmm. modifying the viscosity basically. Mm-hmm. But the diluent is not like acetone or it's not like DNA where it flashes back out. Right. The reactive diluent actually becomes part of the cured coating. Okay. So so you're not dealing with some kind of flammable solvent thing, right. you know, hot. Solvent, that whole, yeah. you know, there was a good discussion on the board a while back. And again, I'm so blessed with such a great group of guys. I, we just don't have drama. Like, right. Yeah. Like you see in some of these other places. I mean, I, I all I was, of the other places. <laughs> oh, I was so leery about starting this Facebook group because a lot oh, yeah. of people don't know this, but I was a moderator on rodbuilding.org for like oh, eight yeah. years. Right. And so, you know, you I paid saw your dues. you have the scars. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so uh anyway uh so reactive diluent becomes part of the cured coating the whole thinning practice i'm not exactly sure where that came about i can tell you that there was a local builder here in san antonio who's deceased now who claimed that he was the one that showed roger about adding denatured alcohol and then roger kind of you know who cares really at this right, point right my my but then Lance said to me, and, and this is this is the side that I fall on. I can tell you that the factories that I knew that were adding a solvent, they weren't doing it because they wanted a thinner finish. They were doing it to prolong the pot life. Right. So they could get more rods coated and have less So waste. they could get more yeah. rods done and weren't wasting finish. 100%. Yeah. You know, so... You know, I, I don't really know. That's one part of rod building history that I don't know anything about and I don't really care to know either. Right. But yeah. uh, 
but you know the argument over the light versus high build you know you can adapt a technique to the high build that will allow you to put it on as thin as you want with the light yeah and vice versa you know i personally have never seen the need for a low build right but i don't really build very many two weight fly rods either right but when i do and i have built some i used high build and right yeah not an issue you know right. so yeah. some guys just i i think that I think there's a guy on my website. I want to say Mark McKenna, maybe. He does there, some there of the is a fly gorgeous. rod builder by that name. Yeah. Yeah. He does some of the most gorgeous work with silk. Yep. Mm-hmm. And and he, God almighty, he put so much acetone in that stuff. It's a wonder yep. he hadn't blown himself into the next zip code <laughs> by trying to flame it. But if I tried to do that, I swear to you, it would come out like curdled milk. Yeah, right. But Mark makes it work. Somehow he makes it you work. Know? Yeah. So And so like, you know, because he's on there telling people like, well, I use one to one acetone or whatever it is that he's using. Forgive me, Mark, if that ratio is wrong. Right. My point is that he makes it. Well, he's got a technique down that makes it work. Yeah. Far be it from me to tell him not to do it's that. It's not working. You know? Right. He's yeah, lying yeah. generation four. I don't care what he does with it, you know, <laughs> but he he produces some of the most gorgeous work over silk yeah. wraps. Right. There's not much that makes me jealous in this industry, but sometimes yeah. I see work like that and I go, I yeah. wouldn't mind trying some of that, you know? Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. but, uh, so I think a lot of that comes down to what your natural inclination is in terms of your technique. Yeah. You know, to me, so this is so funny. We can segue into this and I know you'll remember this. Okay. We talk, we should probably talk about, we were talking about time between coats yep, just yep. a few minutes ago, right? Mm-hmm. So, and Ralphie is probably going to laugh from his grave over this. I, <laughs> there was a thread on the Guild board back about 1997 or so where Ralph was telling everybody he's a one-coat finish. It doesn't matter whether it's a one-weight fly rod or a 130-pound right. class trolling rod. Yep. One coat. Right. One coat. Right. You know? And I'm sitting there thinking, well, I do everything in two coats because right. I like to do, you know, the first coat. And if I have any fuzzies or anything, yeah, clean it up a little, right? Yeah. Clean it up a little. That's yeah. how I do it. Yeah. And well, uh, I probably learned so, it from you. you well, know, we probably, we all, a lot of us arrive at these things, yeah. you know, through independent evolution, you know, sure. I mean, like, yeah. I remember Mike Barkley told me one time, God rest his soul. He said, uh, he said, well, you know what I do is I just slob the finish on there and then I just let it sit in the guides up position and let the stuff drip off. And when it stops dripping, I know that's ideal. And I went, it's exactly what I do. And yeah, Mike yeah. and I have never talked about that before. Right, I know right. you can do something like that too. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so I'll never forget this. So Ralph is, you know how Ralph could be pretty rough, you know, and he was chastising everybody on that board about one coat finish. And you guys are a bunch of losers because you can't do everything in one coat. Right. And, and so we all show up at the 99 guild conclave there in Nashville, you know, and Ralph doing bring, this and he brings a rod around. and yeah you know and he, he you know and he says uh he says okay we're going to apply this coat you know and then we'll let this cure overnight and we'll come back and do the second one and we all looked at him i mean i'll never forget kirkman standing there we're all looking at each other like man you just got through excoriating us for the last right. six months on the guild board about about you're going to do a second coat and he said no boys you got to understand the difference between an application and a coat yeah is that, you know, if you apply finish within 24 hours, that base finish is receptive enough. It's still green enough that it will cross-link chemically right. with the second application right. forming one coat. But yeah. if you wait longer than 48 hours, there's going to be yeah. two distinct yeah. coats. He, he, he was trying to tell us how long to wait. And we were like, how many are you putting on there? And we were all just looking at each other like, I thought I thought you were going to punch him. You know, right, because- yeah. <laughs> thought crossed my mind. You know, so 
it, it's it's funny how verbiage can get in the way, but that is a, that is a point that I think needs to be made. That you know, when you do wait longer than forty eight hours, there are two distinct coats resulting from two distinct applications. Right. Yeah. But if you apply it within twenty four hours, that's two applications Which resulting in one coat. cohesive yeah. coat. There we go. You know, Cross linked so, chemically. And it just has to do with the, yeah. right. It has to do with the with the with the substrate's ability to be receptive enough to chemically cross-link with that second application right yep so, perfect anyway i don't know how we got off on that no that's we, good it's important it's uh, I, this is exactly what we want to talk about yeah. i also this is a weird one but i'm going to put you on the spot for it because you're the guy yeah i have heard a couple of times now people saying oh well you can't put heat on gen 4 it's like what are you talking about i put heat on, i've never not put heat on a batch gen 4 what are you talking about so you know i have one of those little bubble buster yeah deals you know that you little squeeze. Torch. yeah i've done it with no issue it doesn't need it. Yeah, you know, I was going to say, it releases no bubbles so well that it's like, yeah. I've had so many people, you know, that have emailed me over the last five years. I mean, one guy over in Georgia, he had bought some material from Kathy Cruz over at the Rod Room. And, yeah, yeah. And uh, he, uh, he texted me. Down here in Orange day. Beach. Yeah, he, he texted me one day and he said, uh, man, he said, you are my hero. I haven't had, this is the first time in 40 years of building rods that I've never had to use a torch, you know? Yeah. You know, I mean... So much of this stuff, Bill, is is dependent upon the individual, dependent yep. upon their application technique. You know, I mean, if you know how to mix correctly, I can get Gen 4. I never was able to do this with Threadmaster. I can mix a 6cc batch of Gen 4, and inside of five minutes, it'll look like water. I mean, like not one bubble. Yeah. Because I mix slow and deliberate, yeah. right. and I don't use, you know, I don't use a mixer. Right. And I've seen some mixers with, you know, some really Rube Goldberg type of attachments to it. That you just think, golly, oh, how are you know? So, uh, but yeah, kid, kids look up a Rube Goldberg device. Rube yeah, Goldberg. You, yeah, yeah, right. you'll you'll know. Yeah, yeah. Scott Scott Wallace always used to say, "Rube is my hero." Yeah. So, uh, but um, so you know, I think a lot of that depends on how many bubbles you start with to yeah. begin with. Yeah. You know, and it, and it, you know if you'll. I always tell guys three cc's resin, three cc's hardener, mix by hand for three minutes, pour yeah. out on a flat surface, let it sit for a minute or two, and then do your thing. Go to you town. Know? Yeah. You know, I tend to apply finish under power mm -hmm. with my Renzetti, you mm -hmm. know, so that's going to result in probably a few more bubbles. Yeah. But, you know, I will tell you that I have not noticed a significant resistance from generation four to the application of heat as compared to something like FlexCode or Threadmaster. Yeah. That's not to say it's not there. I just don't care enough to look for it. Yeah. And you, you know, can, you can burn any of them if you scorch any yeah. of them. But yeah, I, yeah. I, 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 that's a good way to put it. I have not, I do not have to modify my application of heat any between any of those finishes you mentioned to get good results. Uh, with the caveat that, you, you know, re the reason I'm using heat is to either, release bubbles or impact cure total cure time. Right. And I just don't have to do it with bubbles uh, with, uh, with gen four. Cause it releases. So, so the consensus among the guys and gals on the board seems to be that gen four does benefit from some mild heat mm -hmm. prior mm -hmm. to oh, okay. mixing and measuring. You oh, know? Okay. So, yep. so maybe yep. you put the bottles in the microwave for five or six seconds. Mm -hmm. I don't really like, I, I'm not a big fan of heating amines. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, I'm not a big fan of, you want to heat the resin side a little bit, uh, you know, uh, amines is, uh, you know, probably not the greatest, best practice. Yeah. 
but some guys, you know, they just, and they're not heating it enough to where it's like smoking all over the place. Right, but you right. know, some of them, like one guy told me the other day, he used a baby bottle warmer. Yeah. And yeah. I thought, man, why didn't I think of that? That was a great idea. Yeah. Mud hole so, sells one. It's called an epoxy warmer, but it's, it's, if you've had kids, you know exactly what it is. Exactly. Good on them, yeah. good on them for figuring it yeah. out. But I just set it out. You know, if I'm building a rod in the summer, I just set it outside my shop for about 10 minutes and let it heat up and good to go. Yeah. You know, so. Yeah. hundred um, percent. Now I will tell you that one of the things that I've done and I don't really, I might only build four or five rods a year. I just don't, yeah. just don't have time anymore. But um, one of the things that I do is I've stopped using the torch mm-hmm. uh, unless I really need it. And I just yeah. use uh, a hairdryer set on low mm-hmm. and I just kiss it for like a second. Yeah. Because if anybody is aware how to melt a, the tip of a Loomis GLX fly blank, oh, it would be, oh my no, God, you didn't. <laughs> no, you didn't. You're so mean. <laughs> I should have known a dig was coming. Yeah, this is a true story. And I, I tell this when I'm teaching the technique too. I <laughs> I remember it's when, and I told Gary Loomis this recently, when, uh, when the IMX first or GLX first came out, it was like yeah. the hottest thing since it was like a $2 pistol. It was I'm, so hot. St- I'm not sure that it's still not the hottest thing. Okay. Fair yeah. enough. Fair enough. But it was the first time that I'd run into a high modulus blank with a different high impact resin that had a lower uh, cure, like sort of temperature point. And buddy, yeah, it's I'm called gla- there, glass transition. Glass yeah, transition. I, so I'm sitting there working, and I hit the glass transition point, and that that tip of section of the rod just goes boo. And I mean, I yeah, I nearly threw I up. Heard, I, I heard so the sick. scream I couldn't all the way from I couldn't, afford, I couldn't afford the blank in the first place. So I sure couldn't afford to replace it, right? So oh, I heard man. that scream all the way from Nashville to San Antonio, you Texas. Probably did, man. Yeah. Well, thanks so well, much. Well, you for know, the other thing up. about those. Let's memorialize all my mistakes so I can be an idiot for. <laughs> posterity forever (laughs) Uh, so the other thing about those you know blanks is that as much as it may have to do with glass transition of the resin material whatever you know the thing about the glx is that those were incredibly thin walled blanks incredibly light and and there's just not there's just not enough mass there to absorb the heat you know so recently i've become really good friends with a guy um his name is phil blackmar Mm mm-hmm golfers may know phil he was a professional golfer won several times on the pga tour and the champions tour cool. and now he's a sports analyst for uh for the golf channel and uh, lives down in corpus christi texas really good fly fisherman and mm-hmm. just obsessed with fly casting which i am too you know i mean yeah yeah phil and i probably text message oh gosh i mean sometimes it's multiple times a day you know with thoughts about fly casting or whatever he and i went down into the laguna I guess it's been two weeks ago now, three weeks ago now. I just had a fantastic day with a bunch of high and happy tail and fish and beautiful weather and good company. And and at the but he's really competitive, you know, yeah, which is yeah, why he was yeah. so successful on the PGA tour, you know. Right. And so I, you know, I'm at his house trying to get all my stuff together so I can get back to town, you know, and get cleaned up, you know. And he's out in the street, you know, and he's like, get out of here. We're gonna have a casting contest. Oh, let's you know? go. Yep, yep. <laughs> And, yeah. and, you know, and I said, well, what, what are we using here? And he said, well, it's a seven weight GLX and, you know, and I hadn't cast one in a while. Right. I just thought, man, I don't, I don't know. Now, granted I've cast the NRX too, and Oof. that's a really good rod. Yes, um, they are. Yes, they are. I didn't mean to deviate here. I'm a no, huge okay. Scott fan. Oh, Everything yeah. to me ends and begins with the Scott Gila ply in 1998. Yeah, oh, yeah. But, yeah. uh, but when I cast that GLX, it's the first thing I thought of was you melting that tip off of there. Well, thanks and very the much. Thing I great was, what great a to be remembered. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was still fantastic. It was just a little shorter and crisper than it started. 
Well, you know, it's funny because Phil runs in those circles with people like Henry Middle, people who are hanging out with the Ray Jeffs of the world. Yeah, the competitive and, casting guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Distance uh, casting Chris, people. The Chris yeah. Coriches, you know, and people right. like that. Right. And he swears to me that a lot of those guys are using like eight and nine weight GLXs with two yeah. inches cut off the tip to throw a five weight MED. Yeah. You yeah. know, and I don't. It's a very specialized that. build. Yeah. And they use they use 100 yeah. percent ceramic rings, a lot of them, which is yeah. interesting. Yeah. Um, in fact, you know, I've never been a big fan of ceramic rings on fly rods, not for any other reason that I just think they look terrible. Right. But Paul Arden, who is the owner of Sexy Loops, he's for several years now had a line of fly rods called the Hot Torpedo. Mm -hmm. And he had one the other day that needed a hand fit on a ferrule. So he sent it to me. And I don't remember what ceramics he had on there, but I looked at those and I was like, you know, I could be down with that. Yeah. It looked, it looked really good. They were, the frames were very delicate and the rings were very thin. I'm a big uh, recoil guy. Yep. You know, and mm -hmm. so, and these, you know, back in the old days, you'd put ceramics on a fly rod and they just looked obnoxious. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, and especially if you're building something down here where you got to have a bimini go through, you can't right. use size sixes. Right. You know, right. so anyway, we got derailed there on. That's all right. Fly casting. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, well, thanks for bringing up that I melted a, a GLX. Really appreciate <laughs> it. I'm still, I'm sick to my stomach now, even talking about yeah. it. Well, uh, man, yeah, when we, Phil broke out that GLX, I just thought, wow. I know memory. this idiot who used good to live times. in Nashville. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, and he was, he's so funny. You know, he's, he's so competitive about that kind of stuff. You know, when he figured out that those guys were cutting two inches off the tip, he was ready to do it to all yeah, of Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was going to whack it. Yeah. Why don't you try and, one and I was first? Sitting there, and I was sitting there thinking, I know a guy who could do that for you. Oh. No <laughs> With the cigarette lighter. Yeah. <sighs> well, hey, you know, I'll tell thing... you a funny story real quick. Yeah, um, yeah. Just because I know everybody has these stories and yours happens to be melting the tip off of a GLX. Oh, that's I, one of them. I've got many, unfortunately. I had this really nice rod building room up at the uh, business where I used to work back in the 90s. And I had just finished up two really nice casting rods for a guy who was fishing the Red Man tournament circuit over in Mississippi. Mm -hmm. Very dear friend of our family. Yeah. And uh, I had him on the Turner. The finish is still wet. Hadn't even been on there an hour, you know. And so I decide I'm going to proceed to clean up, you know. Right. And so I'm picking up thread off the floor and masking tape or whatever. And I go to turn the vacuum cleaner on and for, had forgotten that just the day before I had the vacuum cleaner up in the upstairs room where I was cleaning up cork dust. So, so I turned this vacuum cleaner on, man, and this cloud of atomic cork dust <laughs> settles over everything, including, including... Croy rods. Oh, gosh. <laughs> you know, and it was like one of them deals in slow motion where you're like, no. no. <laughs> yeah, not much you can do about that one. So at that point. It makes you feel any better, you know. It does make me feel a little better. I'm glad yeah. you suffered some, you <laughs> bastard. I'm Hey, yep. in all seriousness, though, speaking of court dust, one last thing. We've covered so much. This has been so great. I really appreciate yep. it. But what would you – and again, MDSs are available from you for Gen 4 and all that kind of stuff. But when we talk about safety and, and you know, kind of your health yep. and working with epoxies, like, again, just because you know more about it than most, like, what would yep. you tell people about being careful working with epoxy? What, what do you need to know? What's good habits well, you know, we'd already discussed, you know, it's probably not a best practice to heat, heat amines, you right. know, so yeah. if you're going to heat it, you know, I mean, I would, I always just do the resin side right. because with Gen 4, the catalyst is very thin. Yeah, actually. And I've never had a catalyst uh, crystallized. It's only ever the resin anyway, in my correct. experience. Yeah. So, yeah. But the the, re the catalyst really doesn't need to be heated because yeah, it's, it's thin, right? I wouldn't say it's thin like olive oil, but it's not like honey. 
Right. Um, yeah. you know, yeah. it, it's, it, it doesn't need it. Uh, so right. I would just thin uh, or just heat the resin side. Okay. If you're going to use a solvent to thin it, always use acetone. Okay. Um, you know, we want to use the most volatile thing that we can so we don't end up with any residue like left, you know, any of the, any of the solvent trapped in the cured coating. Right. I'm not a solvent guy. I don't like that. You know, I mean, if I want to thin it, I use heat, you know, so me too, but again, look, you know, you can go look at Mark McKenna's work and, and not argue, you know? So the big thing with epoxy is a lot of people have um, an allergy to it, Mm -hmm. allergic dermatitis. Mm -hmm. And so there's a couple of guys on my board that have that. Mm-hmm. I know Bill Stevens. You remember Bill Stevens? Oh, yeah. Bill, Bill, in fact, Bill could be in the same room as Flexcoat, but he oh, wow. but he could tolerate Threadmaster. Interesting. Yeah, he told me Flexcoat would give him like a rash on his yeah, on his yeah. or something. I don't know if you know uh, Harry Spear, the famous tarpon guide down in the mm-hmm. Keys turned yeah, boat builder sure. in Central uh-huh. Florida. Yeah. Spear boat yeah. work. Yep. Harry and I correspond a little bit. I asked him one time, uh, you know, why he wasn't doing you know, one-off epoxy builds. He said, man, I used to do those and I got, I got, I'm, I'm allergic to that stuff now. Wow. And it has to do with repeated exposure. Scott Wallace, uh, ironically enough, had an allergy for a long time and then it went away. And so um, I'd be lying to you if I told you that there have been times when I've gotten a small little rash, usually right around here, mm-hmm. but I can't, but I can't tell you that it's because of exposure to epoxy because it's not like I go out to my shed touch some epoxy and then I get the rash, right? You know, it's, yeah. it's like, it might be like two days later or something, right. you know? So I, um, but that's the big thing is you, you know, gloves, obviously um, try to limit skin contact with that stuff. You know, I have guys email me about respirators and whatnot. And certainly yeah. I'm not going to discourage you from doing that. You right. know, I mean, my shop is really well ventilated and I have multiple fans and things in there, you know, to extract whatever fumes are in there because I, I mean, a lot of guys may not know this, but I hand pour every one of those Gen 4 kits. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, and we'll probably do, well, I don't know, many thousands of kits this year. And sure. so so I take extra precaution. Harbor Freight is a great place to buy gloves for cheap. Yep. You know, and so, I mean, I, I try to wear gloves. I wear gloves every time. Now, when you're yeah. dealing with this stuff in the same capacity that I am, sometimes you can't help but get get it on your clothes or whatever right. it just is what it is. Right. But, yeah. but allergic dermatitis is the big thing. Um, okay. So just limit your exposure, you know, to both parts. And uh, you know, that's, that's the, that's the big health concern. Obviously, you know, like I say, I'm not going to discourage anybody from wearing a respirator. I do when I'm building a rod, I do for sure, yeah. because I'm a lot closer down to it, but sure. um, yeah, yeah. That's the main thing is the allergic dermatitis. Awesome. Well, man, I know, I know this has been kind of a long, uh, a longer than average episode, but what, what a great time catching up and thank you so much for taking the time. And listen, if you want to learn more about any of the stuff we've talked about, we'll post up links, but you can find Andy at gen4resins.com and it's G-E-N, the number four, resins, yep. plural.com. Yep. Um, he's got the Gen 4 users group on Facebook. Um and, 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 and certainly, you know, the sexy loops, you can see him on Mondays and all that. Yeah. Mondays is my column on there. And none of that has anything to do with, well, very little of it has to do with rod building. It's more just fun stories from the old days. Sure. Or, yeah. Um, yeah. So, and sexy loops is a great site for, you know, if it is a great site. 
it, it hadn't gotten the recognition it deserves here in the States, but it's a tremendous resource for anybody who's interested in the technical aspects of fly casting. Yep. So absolutely, give a shout out to Paul for giving me that platform as well. Absolutely. Well, man, it is just such a pleasure. You're a living legend as well as, <laughs> as well as a dear friend, no pun intended. Yeah. And uh, it's just it's so fun to have you on here. And we, we could have talked for even hours more about various, yeah. Yeah. various uh, developments and trends and tools and techniques you've tried yep. and developed and uh, i sure am grateful that you've shared them with me over the years because it's made me a, a better builder and a, a better player of copperhead road for sure so uh, <laughs> well it's I been my pleasure i man. appreciate you brother i appreciate you too you know this i that's the only thing i've ever really been naturally good at bill uh, you know i've been a banker several times in my life and i'm probably mediocre at that and i ran a you know a pretty sizable small business for a while and i was okay at that but what it's meant to me, especially to have a second life yeah. in this business has been really, we have a high profile fishing guide down here in, in Rockport. His name is Jay Wadkins. Mm-hmm. He's a, uh, a successful tournament angler too. And sure. some, somebody not too long ago, local company down here did a little mini documentary on, on Jay and, and is really well done. And, uh, it's on YouTube if anybody wants to watch it, but, yeah. uh, towards the end of the documentary, you know, they asked him something about, you know, getting older and how that was going to affect his fishing, you know, and he said something that really resonated with me. And I thought was very poignant. You know, he said, one day, I just hope I'm out there. And he said, I, I hope I make a cast and take my last breath. And that's where they find me is right there. And, and I, it's just meant so much to me, not just to have the first career, but yeah, I wasn't really sure how I was if anybody would even remember me from because right. I'd been gone so long, and, and the and the of course it's been five years now, but the reception has been just nothing short. We amazing. well, you've earned it. We remember you, and we appreciate your contribution to the craft. And that's uh, been my great awesome pleasure. to catch up. Well, hey man, we'll have you on again, and uh, we need to get together and go fishing. I agree. Anytime, right. man. Man, thanks so much, and thanks for listening to the Mastering Rod Building Podcast. Uh, please tune in, like and subscribe, and uh, download wherever you get your podcast content. We'll see you next week.